Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a Wednesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. It's the middle of the week, so you know that means Matt Green has returned, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, my good friend Matt Green. That is Matt. Good evening, sir. How are you? Good evening, sir. I am uh, glad to be back on the pod, talking talking ball, as we do every week. We do. We do. Um, it's chilly. I'm in my hoodie. It's hoodie, uh, warm socks. I got my fuzzy warm socks. I got the, the sweats on. Like, it is my time of year i am i am so so excited for for yeah, this are you i rocked a hoodie earlier tonight yeah mm-hmm. wednesday is our pizza night so every wednesday we uh we go to rosati's it's chicago style it's a bomb ass pizza place but um i rocked a hoodie this this uh after work today it's definitely getting cold this is my favorite time of the year not only football season but just the fall weather it's my jam Rosati's, so it's a Chicago spot. Tequila, I'm assuming. It's actually in Hushton. Okay. So up there near kind of a little past Mill Creek High School, but yeah, it's a it's a good spot. It's actually it was Tori's first job ever, like when she was a teenager, like mm. back in Illinois. And there's a there's a few there's a few locations uh, here in Georgia. Oh, okay. So she, it it yeah. was literally the same kind of. It, yeah, I get, like it, the, they're like corporate headquarters are in Warrenville, Illinois. Like that's where she's from. Mm, interesting. What yeah. is your what? What do you think of Chicago style pizza? Is that something you actually do prefer? Well, I will say it's not deep dish. Okay, so that's what everyone thinks when you think Chicago style. So it's just like a normal like thin crust pizza. But mm. I the one time I went to Chicago and had deep dish, I thought it was great. But um. In general, I feel like I, I, I feel like it was part of the experience made it cool, you know, in Chicago eating deep dish, but uh, but yeah, it's it's too saucy for me like to eat all the time to be honest. Like I prefer like a normal, the normal pizza structure, if you will. The normal pizza structure, he Just says. Standard because it's like bread, cheese, and then like sauce on top. It's like mm-hmm. kind of throws you off, you know. That's fair. I'm I'm very pro thin crust. I had a uh, thin crust in wings last night. I've been under the weather, as you know, um, for the last several days, and um, I, I it's driving me nuts. Like I've not been able to exercise since like Friday. Um, just different stuff, and it, no hashtag run Knoxville. Yeah, that's you. You get it, Matt. You get it. The folks get it. They've been wondering. They've been asking. People have been wondering what's what's been up, um, and it's driving me drive me bonkers to be completely honest that i've not been able to do anything hopefully by the end of the week i should be should be close but i was thinking about it where i was like man i have not eaten much in like five days and i just need to get some calories back in me because i have not been up to it so if i do go back into really i'm gonna I, as you know matt i'm not someone who needs to be losing any weight i am <laughs> that's not really uh something that should be on my to-do yeah, list yeah. Got to pack on mass, mm-hmm. especially for this season. Like we're in the fall winter time, this is the time to be packing mass. <laughs> exactly. It's just not my deal. It's always been hard. It's always been hard, and people are not gonna shed a tear for somebody complaining about how difficult it is to gain weight. But um, no, it's always been it's always been difficult for me. But I am just 
it seems like I'm closer closer to the mend than I was, especially on Saturday and Sunday, which were rather brutal. Um, but you know, hopefully, hopefully, uh, I get through this because I do. I get stir crazy, so um, I, I just I can't not be be doing stuff. Uh, we can find you on Twitter.com, Matt Green, by going to Matt underscore W underscore Green. Go check him out there. If you have not already, give him a follow. Uh, you know, I'm still Chase double underscore Thomas. Uh, go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com to get access to all of our, our previous episodes. Uh, Matt and I do these twice a week during the college football season. These episodes pop up on your feed, whether it's Apple, Spotify, wherever, on Mondays for the recap show and then Thursday um, for the preview show. Um, go do that if you have not already and subscribe to the newsletter at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Read right there every single day. Matt, we have some stuff. We have some stuff to hit before we get into this week's pick Um Lane Kiffin, he's been angling for the Manning cast to call the Tennessee Ole Miss game in Knoxville in a couple weeks. I don't know if that's going to happen. I have my doubts. Uh, but... We'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm not looking forward to that one, and we'll get into some Tennessee stuff this this podcast as well because they have a big night game uh, on the docket this week. Um, but first, Kiffin talking about Alabama. He loves to talk about Alabama, give up the secrets on the D's nuts stuff and everything, but um, he made a point where he was like, Bama can cherry pick the transfer portal. And this is one of those things where it, it gets into muddy waters very quickly. We're like, oh, so you're just anti-player. It's like, well no um this is just one of the fallouts where it's like i I, i'm reading this a lot um in college basketball right now where they're a lot of group of five coaches are looking at this and like the power five schools what's stopping coaches from preying on their best players and pulling them and talking to them and just being like oh yeah you're you're too good for this place it's time for you to make the jump over here and recruiting players um on other teams that are maybe happy being in those situations, but just getting in their ear and pulling them um, for NIL stuff where it's like, oh, we can get you this kind of deal. Bryce Young's making yeah, I mean, a million. Not, not even not even group of five to power five either. Yeah. Sevier like, Wheeler was like a three-year starter at Georgia, and now he's going to be at Kentucky. Like, mm-hmm. they just, oh, yeah, they just go kind of snag whoever they want. I don't like this. This is something that I do think a lot of the transfer portal stuff will start to settle up out in the next couple of years, but... I think this is a real problem, and I don't know how you legislate this out. Like, I don't know how you legislate Bama not being able to cherry pick the portal. Um, do you think this is a possibility? Is there a way to limit this kind of jumping? I mean, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, you saw just this year how they went out and got Henry Toa Toa and Jameson mm-hmm. Williams, like. Even a team like Georgia, like they had a, a few, you know, what were perceived weak spots with a, uh, with their receiving core and their uh, defensive secondary, and they go out and get Tyke Smith from West Virginia, Eric Gilbert from LSU. Neither of them have played yet, but you're, I mean, there's just really no way to legislate this because if you're if you're into doing what's best for the players and what's best for everybody, it's at the at the end of the day, it's like. You, you can't you can't tiger proof the course right like there's the great teams are are great for a reason you know they're going to find ways to to succeed regardless of the hand they're dealt or the hand that's dealt to to the country so you know it's it's unfortunate 
but it's just one of those things I think you have to accept because it, it just doesn't the, the alternative just doesn't make sense for coaches to be able to, I mean, put a program on probation and then just jump ship and go somewhere else. Like coaches can jump all they want, but a, a player who just has four years, such a limited amount of time to, you know, to li- to literally prove his worth and try to do this professionally, like you need exposure. So guy, if you want what's best for the players, like there's no way to really prevent the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Georgias from, you know, having a few weak spots in their in their lineup and just supplementing it with, with other Power 5 players, with actual good players across the country. Yeah, I, I think he's right here, and I think this is going to be something interesting to monitor because I think Group of 5 schools are going to be, and like you said, other Power 5 schools are going to want to put a put it into this because if this becomes a common thing where, like, the coaching staff has a little bit of turnover um, and then all the best players from that program just migrate to Bama or Clemson after it's just, uh, it's that's just, you, you can't have that. That's just bad, and bad the for the only- sport. The only way to legislate any of it is, you know, like limiting scholarships. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there's talks of expanding scholarships because of these one-year transfers. And obviously the these maybe it's just a temporary thing with these super seniors things, everyone being granted an extra year because of COVID. So, yeah, the, these the, the rich are going to always going to figure out a way to get richer. You know, that's just kind of the reality. Absolutely. Um Another item that I thought was interesting. So Paul Feinbaum um, said that Dion at USC would be unbelievable. Um, I guess unbelievable because the excitement would be fun and he would be great for interviews and all that. Um, but he just got on with Jackson State. Like, let's let's see. Um, now, if you were to tell me it would be exciting to see Dion at FSU, yes. Sign me up for that. Because if you're telling me it can get worse them where they're at at 0-3 for the first time in 40 years and basically where they were at before Bobby Bowden came in um yeah that sign me up for that because you have nothing to lose um nothing nothing to lose at Tallahassee not this year because I think you have to keep Norvell for at least one more year probably two but I don't like the idea of handing it over to USC he doesn't have any ties and all that kind of stuff and he'll obviously recruit his tail off over there but I don't know I don't I don't like that fit and for for USC what do you think yeah, I feel like it's just because he's, like, so Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's I feel like, why people are saying that. But, I mean, like you said, let, let this guy coach a full season. Like, he hasn't even coached one full season yet at Jackson State. So, like, let's see that this guy's actually a good coach at the level he's at before we we think he can handle a job like USC. And, and I agree, for, for someone like Deion Sanders to be, like, such a splash and everything – it feels like he needs to be at his alma mater to to do all that. You know, it's like, I don't know. I, Dion's going to be prime time anywhere he goes, right? So it, he could definitely make USC sexy and everything. And I'm sure he would have the the recruits would be in, they would see USC as a destination again. Dion Sanders is just that kind of guy. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's a little, it's a little premature. That it that feels like such a I don't know like win win the front page like news story but not really worried about long term like I don't know it it 
it feels like a New York Mets kind of move, you know? Mm. Like, you, you want to make a splash, but it might not have the best substance. I was going to say more Dallas Cowboys, where it's like Mike McCarthy, he won a Super Bowl 15 years ago. He's he's something. He, he coached Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. Um, he gets along with Jerry. He'll do whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's a realistic thing, but I am curious ultimately to see where they go because you made this joke, which... I don't know. It could happen because we've seen this before with the interim, the interim coach, and he gets, like you said, ten games to do this. And That's what do they do? Time. They stopped Washington State. They came back from fourteen nothing and then beat the crap out of him. I think they ended up scoring forty five unanswered to win that game. So we have to see what happens there too. Yeah, that and that's why it was such a dumb time. For the that's why it's just such terrible timing. Because if you fire a guy after two weeks. Like, you already wanted to fire him. Why didn't you fire him back in December? You clearly you clearly weren't satisfied with the job he's doing. Two weeks doesn't prove anything. Mm-hmm. So it, the timing was just terrible. And, you know, who knows? He could have righted the ship and they could have come back and won the Pac-12 anyway. So I just – I think they're, they're – just because – and I feel bad for Dante Williams because it really doesn't matter how good of a job he does. Like, they literally could – could go 11 and 1 this year, 12 and 1 and win the Pac 12, but they're just not going to make that same interim coach decision again that he's not going to be the guy. Yeah, I agree. Um speaking of the Trojans, Keaton Slovis looks like he's going to get the start again um, after missing last week due to injury against the Cougs, but Jackson Dart, man, dude look good. Do you know where Jackson Dart came from? Um I, I, he sounds like he'd be from Texas. He's not. He's oh, not. Okay, Where, where's he from? He was the quarterback who followed Zach Wilson at his high school. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Where, In Nevada. Nevada, okay. Or Utah, excuse me. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I think that's questionable. I thought Jackson Dart looked good last week for uh, for for against Washington State. So, we'll see. Keaton Slovis, like, I'm... I'm still waiting for him to look more like he did as a freshman. Um, I just haven't been impressed with him last year or uh, or early in this season. Last thing, we'll get it to the games this week, Matt Green. Um, college football. This was the biggest news of the day. Um, the the CFP board delays a vote on the 12 team proposal. You were tweeting about this a little bit. What do you make of uh, today's events? Uh, well, yeah, I. With with more conference realignment stuff happening, I kind of I kind of wasn't in favor as in favor of the twelve team playoff as I was when I first heard it. Like I when I first heard it, I I thought yeah you know twelve team like let's just take all of the the opinions and everything out of it and just decide it all on the field, you know. But then the Oklahoma and Texas news happened, and then now obviously we got more teams coming to the Big Twelve, so there's just if we're creating like four super conferences, if that's kind of the where we're going with this, ultimately four or five, it feels like an eight-team playoff is where we're ultimately going to be uh, kind of land on this. I know Heather Dinich said SEC, the SEC and Notre Dame, which is hilarious how like all the conferences have like <laughs> representatives, and then there's Notre Dame, like it's just ridiculous to me but (laughs) they're essentially like the sec and notre dame would never agree to eight teams with automatic qualifiers and for the sec 
that's because it could limit the number of teams they think they can get in. And Notre Dame is obviously not in a conference, so they obviously don't want that. But and then Heather Denich also said, so the SEC and Notre Dame will never do it without with qualifiers, but the Group of Five would never agree to it without qualifiers. So at eight eight teams with qualifiers, like especially if once you're including like Group of Five or something, like you talk about like six automatic bids or something, like that's just unrealistic. I don't know why. It's like the group of five essentially has zero chance with a four-team playoff. Like an eight-team with no automatic bids for any conferences, like the group of five can sneak in there without a doubt. Like I, I think that they'd be making a mistake if they if they let that one aspect of the non-automatic qualifier prevent them from expanding the playoffs from four to eight. Because I mean that's ob- that's automatically going to increase their chances of getting a team in the playoff. Yeah, I think their biggest thing, though, is not even the, the qualifier with them. It's just that, like, I think they're nervous. Like, they want something in writing where it's like, okay, there's no... We have to have X amount of teams in, but, like, there needs to be something in here that guarantee, maybe not guarantees the Power 5 stuff, but, like, guarantees, like, if you are ranked X or something, or, like, you have to give them something to assure group of five schools that they will have a play because like this is something that you and I have talked about and this is something that I think the group of five schools should be doing anyways that like one of the the biggest dirty little secret in, in college football and Matt Wyatt uh from the program um the Mississippi State color analyst former quarterback at Miss State um he's made this point where it's like you can't tell any college football fan that South Florida or South Alabama is going in or north texas whoever is going into any college football season with the same goals and expectations that alabama and clemson or georgia and iowa state whoever have like they're not playing for anything like you have to be honest about that so if you're a group of five school you're like well what is the incentive here we want to make sure that we're taking care of our guys like we can't run the gauntlet we can't do any of that because like it doesn't matter if you expand um south florida or i I shouldn't be picking on south florida like san diego state is a good example of this yeah like they're not winning three playoff rounds against power five the elite of the elite power five like that's it's just impossible it 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 works in basketball it works in baseball it does not work in football unfortunately it's a very dog-eat-dog world and the cream rises to the top and really it's the blue chippers rise to the top so like None, all that being said, they just want assurances that they get a seat at the table to give their schools and their programs like, hey, if we have a magical year, we are assured that we will get into the dance and that we have the opportunity to at least maybe get one upset in. I'm not saying they can't win a game, but they can't run the gauntlet. And that is something that I think they're working towards. But the vibe I get and what I read post meeting is that they're actually pretty close. And this is um something where it's like they're moving in the right direction and they'll figure this part out that this is not not a huge impediment to expansion well you talked about you know legislation on preventing teams from you know just stacking the rosters you mm-hmm. know, rich getting rich, richer in that way that's where i feel like the 12 team playoff makes the biggest difference like because you've seen the guys that maybe they're the fourth or fifth guy on kentucky's roster but they can go to Gonzaga and be the number one or two guy. You know, they can they can go to one of those mid majors and show out and be the best player on the team and average twenty something a game, and they can get discovered that way. So I feel like 
the 12-team playoff, if you're worried about the rich getting richer in this transfer portal era, mm-hmm. one-time transfer era we're in, like that's how you do it. If if you can go to UCF, and I mean, granted, they're a Big 12 team now, but if you can go to Coastal Carolina or a Boise State and actually get into the playoff, like that's the ultimate equalizer, I think, for those. And not, and not just going all the way down there, like, you can go to Wisconsin, you can go to Iowa, you can go to, you know, a Florida, a team that hasn't been in the playoff, but at 12 teams, you know, Florida might might have made two or three playoffs in a row at this point, you know, and it just, it, it makes so many more teams actually nationally relevant, and I think expanding the playoff to 12, I think still, like, that's the best chance you have of the rich not getting richer, in my opinion. That's fair, that's fair. Um, what do you think ultimately happens? We'll put a bow on it this way. Do you think they end up settling on an eight team or a 12 team? It, if I had to guess, I would say they probably go eight because I don't know. People just like, there's so many changes happening in college football. It, it seems like that's a way for like, okay, let's not like change it too much. Like four to 12 is like a huge jump, but it felt like, maybe it was huge enough to be a permanent jump. We're not just going to be increasing it every couple of years, you know, but I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I, I really didn't mind the initial uh, expansion to 12, but it, it feels like with the pushback, it feels like maybe we're, we'll get eight, but you know, maybe the group of five won't agree to that. So maybe we could go to 12. It's, it's really hard. It's hard to say. What do you think? I think it's 12. I think they're not going to, the group of five is not signing up for eight. Yeah, I could, and I could see that. I think if you're not going to give them assurances of qualifying for the playoff, then like you're giving us 12. Like that's that's our only our way out of it. You're not telling us to we're going to expand to eight, and then yeah, we'll wink, wink, give you guys a shot in the in the the eight team fold, like for sure. They're and not going to do that. That's a good point too, because if if you essentially have the group of five, which is you know if there's 130 teams in, in college football, the group of five is about what 60 of them or so. Mm-hmm. And then you have the sec completely on board and probably Notre Dame too, because 12 teams increases their chances of making the playoff every year. And the sec could get four or five teams in at in a 12 team playoff. If, if all of those teams or those entities agree with the 12, yeah, I could definitely see it going to 12. There you go. Um, Matt, we are going to pause real quick for a message from our sponsors, and then it's time to do our pick them. All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am joined, as I am twice a week, especially on this Thursday program that you guys are listening to this at by my good friend Matt Green. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt underscore W underscore Green. Matt, before we get into these games real quick, I want to mention um, your brother. I'm assuming that was your brother. Last name Green on Twitter. Jake, is this one of the brothers? <laughs> yes, that is my older brother. Okay, hi, Jake. I know you're listening to this. I know you're going to hear this. Um, he was not a fan of my Tennessee take, and he's going to bat for you. The brotherly love is strong. We're not in Philadelphia, but the brotherly love is is strong between you guys because he came to your offense on twitter.com and pointed out that i did suggest that tennessee would score uh, at least 35 on uh, this georgia defense um, when that game does <laughs> yeah. happen um and then going at kirby for the for the stetson 
Stetson moment in last Saturday's game. Um, what do, what do you make of it? Is your brother is he fired up? Is he is he really just uh, not not a fan of my takes? Well, to be honest. I don't know. I still don't understand your Stetson Bennett take. It's just crazy to me. It's like this guy came in and won SEC Offensive Player of the Week. Like, I don't. We know. don't have that, to regurgitate that. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole again. We don't have to go down the whole thing. Mm. But um, Tennessee. I just Tennessee scored thirty four points against Pittsburgh. I don't know how the hell they're going to score thirty five against Georgia. Like Georgia's. Georgia has not given up a touch or given up one touchdown in the first three games so far this mm-hmm. season. So Tennessee, while they might be showing progress by the end of the season, I don't see them. Um, I don't see them hanging with Georgia at all. But I will say. So I have a question for you, Matt Green. Hold on, hold on I will say. Okay. Jake did ask me. He's like, "Hey, do you care if I like say something?" Like, <laughs> like I'm not trying to make it awkward for you. I was like, "Hey, man, you're listening to the pod. You got an mm-hmm. opinion? Go for it. Like, do your thing." I'm not gonna tell you what you can or can't say on social media. So he did. He did. Uh, he wanted to be respectful. I like that. Shout out to you, Jake. I know you're gonna hear this. Uh, you can go at me whenever. My takes. If I'm gonna put it on air, <laughs> then I should be. I should be open to debating them, and I should That's be open to. I mean, yeah. I'm glad he's listening. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Jake. Um, but I will say, Matt, do you know how many times Josh Heupel scored less than thirty point thirty five points last year? How many? Twice. Do you know what those point totals were? In the Boca Raton Bowl, 23 gets BYU, and they got boat race in that game. The only other time, when would you guess it was? I don't know, probably versus Cincinnati. It was Cincinnati, 33, two points away. Cincinnati, who has a very, very good defense, top 10 defense in football, very similar to Georgia. They gave Georgia a lot of problems last year. The scores last year for for the UFC Gold or UCF Gold Knights, 49, 51, um, 49, 51, 44, 38, 33, 58, and then 23 at the last. Like, if you go through, and I I went through this, the reason I threw that out there is like, if you go through Hypel's game log, like even dating back to like Mizzou as the OC, it's just like the defense numbers are not great, but like, that dude, he finds a way to put points in the board. Like no matter what, the game might be out of reach. He's how still many, putting uh, points in the board. How many SEC teams did he uh, did he did he face last year? Uh, he faced zero. The only thing I'm saying is UCF was out talenting. I mean, Cincinnati's a good team. Probably, probably, you know, how many games they played? Like BYU's eight, a good team. Games, ten yeah. games last year. They probably out talented eight, nine of the teams they played last year. Mm-hmm. So it's just a completely different beast. Tennessee's about the tenth. 11th most talented team in the SEC. Whoa, did you say 10th or 11th? I mean, the Tennessee was just decimated by the transfer. I'm not portal. disagreeing, but there's a lot of talent. Like, I don't know if you've seen the early the returns. See, though, man. Wait, hold on. Have you seen the early returns on Tennessee's defense? One of the best rush defenses in football to this point. Um, defensive line, great high pressure rate. Um, Matthew Butler is a stud. We get Byron Young in there. Um, Tennessee's got got some players. Got pieces. I'm saying they lost a lot. In the I'm game. not disagreeing with that. No, and but so I think they've. The SEC is just a loaded conference, and mm-hmm. I think Tennessee is going to. He's going to go from having more talent in the opposition every single week, just about, to being, you know, overmatched by talent against just about everybody except for maybe Vanderbilt and I don't know South Carolina. Like I, I'm not even sure. How many teams? No, Tennessee's got more talent than Miss State, South Carolina. 
maybe Missouri. Missouri, uh, yes. Vanderbilt. Um, Kentucky's just, a toss-up. It's, yeah, it's it's a completely different beast, and mm-hmm. I think that's what that's what gets. I think people overlook about like the teams that don't recruit well mm-hmm. or like don't recruit recruit elite. It's like oh, they don't get elite recruits, but. They do so. They do well in the ACC. It's like oh, this is a veiled yeah, shot they, at Dan Mullen. They, How are you going to bring no, this to Dan Mullen? No, it's not Dan Mullen at all. It's like okay. it's more of a shot at like people talk about Oklahoma or Clemson. Like oh, they don't recruit top three, but they're in the playoffs every year. It's like yeah, but they still have more talent than everyone they're playing in their conference every year. You know, it's like it's not like it's the uh, Clemson is getting the fourth best recruiting class in the ACC and they're winning that conference every year. Like they might have the tenth ranked recruiting class some years eighth ranked recruiting class but it's usually first maybe second if florida state is up there or something or miami but it's it's almost always the first ranked class in the in the conference i think that's what people miss lots of times like ucf yeah they're not getting you know sec talent but they're getting more talent than anyone else in in the american at that point you know what i mean that's fair that's fair um well let's pick some games matt green we, Georgia, Tennessee is is down down the road. We have some time for that, and we'll learn a lot based on what happens this Saturday. But first, Notre Dame, Wisconsin. Oh, hold on, hold mm. on. Before we get started, um, she they released the new SEC schedule. I did. Shout out to Tennessee taking a five hundred thousand dollar loss to get Army off the calendar next year. <laughs> yes, and Alabama at Texas. There's uh, there's some good ones. Mm-hmm. But what, the thing I was most excited about. I don't know if you noticed the November slate. Mm-hmm. I counted about five cupcake games in November in the entire conference. If we can finally get rid of the November cupcake week, that would just make the SEC season so much better. Like Georgia's November slate is like Mississippi State, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, and like Georgia Tech. It Instead of this UMass <laughs> thrown in at the end or Troy or something or – it's I just I love to see that because it's just such a buzzkill, especially the teams that have the ACC rivals at the very end. It's like you're you're basically done with SEC play in like the first week of November. So I was really glad to see that with a just a, a more full slate down the stretch of the season. Tennessee schedule is like in a whole like situation of like Danny White being like, hey, we're eight wins minimum like we're it we're ensuring eight wins are are happening next year we're ensuring progress because so mm, what was army was that is that too good too good you don't want the triple option on a random (laughs) september saturday no that we would have absolutely lost that game next year like i didn't want any part of army and jeff monk and what they've got going on no thanks don't want that early in the season 500k to just thanks but no thanks (laughs) yeah turning our backs against the troops um not a great look for the walls but no so our home schedule i told the sports renaissance woman about this today and i was like this schedule for the home for for us just stinks because there are three gimmies ball state akron and um, ut martin three home games blown to those three cupcakes and then the other ones are awful because we're not going to win those either so it's either like the ones you go in the only toss-up is Missouri at home in November, but like the other home games are Florida, Bama, and Kentucky, the three best teams potentially on our outside of uh, Georgia on the road. Like, so basically, we're going to every home game either almost assuredly knowing we're going to win 
or assuredly knowing we're gonna lose. There's no toss-up games. It could help with some of those uh, with some of those games you ever matched. I guess. I guess. We'll see. We'll see. And uh, another thing, I know mm-hmm. the 2020 COVID like messed up a lot of like the rotations and everything. Mm-hmm. But Florida is gonna be going to College Station for the third time since they joined the SEC next year. And Georgia still has not played <laughs> Texas A&M. It's so weird. Like, they played one time. This will now be the fourth time that uh, that Florida and Texas A&M. I was going to say, weren't they just there last year? Yeah, they just played there last year. And I know Johnny Manziel, like, I think his first game in the SEC, I think the A&M's first game in the SEC was Florida uh, at home. But uh, hmm. and, in the, and in the game where uh, they rocked the lizard or the gator-looking uniform. Oh, that, yeah. That was A&M as well. But um, but let's get into it. Here's the pick em for this week. Uh, refresh the listeners uh, on our season total. I am 23 and 11 overall, 17 and 16 and one against the spread. You are 15 and 19 overall and a 15, 18 and one against the spread. And also Zeus is two and zero on the <laughs> his home dog of the week. Shout out to Zeus. So. Uh, if, if Zeus says it, you got to take that to the bank. So starting off, college game day, big noon on Saturday, your boys, Gus Johnson, mm. Joel Klatt. We got Notre Dame and Wisconsin. It'd be cool to do it in Madison or South Bend, mm. but we're going to do it in Chicago. Soldier Field. Wasn't this originally supposed to be in Lambeau? Last year wasn't the twenty twenty. Isn't this a rescheduling from what it was supposed to be last year? Am I? Oh, you know, did I misread I'm not that? Sure about that. Okay. But uh, I'll have to do some research on that. But uh, Wisconsin comes in as a five and a half point favorite. Uh, what do you like? What do you think about this game? I went back and I watched um, all of Notre Dame Purdue. Um, obviously, I watched all of Notre Dame Florida State. Two very different games. Um, Tyler Buckner got in for a series. He runs hard, but he's not a passer yet, and he's not going to be a guy for Notre Dame this year, unfortunately. But Jack Cohn, efficient. He's having a very different kind of year than Graham Mertz, and obviously the history with Jack Cohn leaving the Wisconsin program after a really, really underrated 2019 season. They went to the Rose Bowl with Jack Cohn. They were like, no, we're we're good with Graham Mertz. And Graham Mertz had that great showing against Illinois to start last year with all the the completion percentage record. Remember, he went full... um, who was it? Grayson Lambert. Grayson Lambert. Yeah. <laughs> he went full Grayson Lambert in that opener and uh, hasn't been smooth sailing since. He has more picks than touchdowns. He hasn't thrown a touchdown pass to this point in the season, but in Wisconsin's favor, they had a bye last week. They had a week off um, after beating Eastern Michigan. Um, they have been able to run all over the opposition. However, Purdue had their running back out last week. Their starter... So they had no running game. But Plummer picked them apart through the air, especially early. A lot of dink and dunk stuff. Like Kyle Hamilton's an absolute star in that secondary, but he's it. They're limited in the secondary. But I do like Notre Dame up front, and I do like Kyron Williams a lot. That guy's a star as well in the backfield. Um, I like the, the receivers for Notre Dame. I think they have more skill talent, but uh, a lot of returning talent in Wisconsin the receiver spot um obviously the clemson transfer we've talked about on this podcast malusi who has just run all over everybody to this point so when i think about all that and i think about the returning pieces there's a reason this is only five and a half i 
I don't believe Jack Cohn is going to be able to do enough to win this game. If Graham Mertz just game manages, if he just does what Jack Cohn did in 2019, Wisconsin should win this game. Because I think this is as weak um, as Notre Dame has been on the defensive side of the ball. Um, they're still figuring stuff out with Freeman uh, as the new DC. I was not impressed. Purdue gave them a lot of problems through the air. And I, if you're going to get carved up by Plummer, who is not good, um, not good whatsoever, and uh, boy, they're making country, I'm a little concerned about what Graham Mertz is going to do, especially with the week off. Um, it's a big game for Notre Dame because he becomes uh, that person being, Brian Kelly becomes the all-time Notre Dame wins leader if he wins this game. Neutral site, I still have a hard time believing Wisconsin starting off one and two. So give me, give me the Badgers to win and cover. Oh, okay. See, the five and a half points is is where I struggled. I um, I also I feel like Wisconsin. You know, in many ways they outplayed Penn State in that uh in that season opener. It wasn't home, but they just had just costly turnovers. Just every time they got to the red zone, I just think Wisconsin is better at the line of scrimmage than Notre Dame. I feel like they're going to be able to run on them. I'm also going to go with Wisconsin, but I'm going to take Notre Dame to cover. This feels like a 20 to 16 kind of game, and I just I don't see them winning by like I don't see them winning by a touchdown. So give Wisconsin, but Notre Dame covers. Okay. Um, and then we go to the SEC. 12 o'clock. ESPN. We need some cowbell. Mississippi mm. State is a three and a half point dog at home versus LSU. From 2000 to 2013, LSU won 14 straight <laughs> in this rivalry. Last seven years, it is just four and three. Mm. So it's gone back a little bit. I think we all remember KJ Costello for Heisman after mm. week one of the 2020 season had over 600 yards yeah. uh, passing on LSU. They, they turned the ball over four times and still scored 44 points against LSU in Death Valley last year. But then I, you saw people start to play zone against the Mississippi State uh, offense against their air raid attack, and they really just kind of laid an egg after that point in the season. So I just don't feel like LSU is going to let this happen again. I still don't know how good LSU is, and I definitely don't know how good Mississippi State is. They looked... You know, suffocating against NC State uh, at home at night. But then they come out against Memphis and just kind of lay an egg. So I went back and forth on this one, but ultimately I decided I'm going to have to take – I'm going to have to take LSU. I like I like Max Johnson. You know, he's been solid so far this year. They have to be better on defense than they, they looked against UCLA. They don't have to be, but I think they will be. And uh, I'm going to take LSU. Mm. I'm going to stay here to win and cover. Um, they're my home dog of the week, Matt Green. Mm. Zach Arnett. Dog of the week. He is uh, Zach Arnett is the un, unsold hero, unsung hero rather, in, in Starkville. Dude's a star. He's going to be a head coach in this league. Maybe not the SEC, but he's getting a head coaching job sooner rather than later. What he's done with that Mississippi State defense is special. Um... Mississippi State does not run the football at all. Like, they have no running game whatsoever. Mike Leach is not even pretending to run the football. Um, Will Rogers is going to throw 50-plus times in this ballgame. A lot of dink and dunk stuff. But, man, I love the receivers 
on Mississippi State. Like going watching the film on those dudes, they get open, they get separation, they're really good after the catch. I I think Miss State is more complete. I still don't trust this LSU defense whatsoever, and I'm not even sure I really trust Max Johnson. Um, I, I I think Will Rogers does enough here. I think this is not a blowout like it was last year. I think this is going to be fun. I think the fact that it's in Starkville is cool. I don't know why this was a nooner and they put Bama on against who are they playing South? Like who are they playing on the SEC Network at night? They're playing somebody, um, somebody random. On that. But like I don't know why you wouldn't put this on prime time on the SEC Network. But uh, yeah, yeah, Bama Southern Miss. Yeah, I don't I don't know why they did that. But you know. Give me, give me the Bulldogs. I don't think they go back to back. They, they had their, they had their bad moment against Memphis, and I think especially with how that ended, they're gonna be, they're gonna be ready to go. That's the one thing I was do, I was thinking too. It's like you just get good, good Mike Leach teams, bad Mike Leach teams every other week. So maybe we'll get a good one this week. Um, next one we're going twelve o'clock. ESPN two Missouri at Boston College. Boston College, this is your home dog of the week right here. Oh. Two point uh two point dog at home. Did you hear Eli Drinkowitz giving that bulletin board material? What did he say? So he said he said we're going up to Massachusetts. I'm paraphrasing, I don't know exactly what he said, but he said it's great to go up to Massachusetts in the Northeast. You know, and um, increase our recruiting footprint. And then he paused for a second, and he was like, "That was a joke, by the way." And then he essentially, people kind of played it that he was kind of, kind of throwing shade at the previous athletic director for even scheduling this game in Boston. Like he was just kind of like, "I'm not really sure why we're going up there. I'd rather play like a, you know, a, a more regional rivalry that can help recruiting and that kind of thing." But just totally throwing shade at just every recruit coming out of the Northeast. Like, I know they're not producing that many uh, top 300 recruits or anything uh, up there, but it's just crazy to hear a coach say something like that, especially when you're Missouri. Like, if there's a big-time prospect from anywhere, you should you should be trying to get players from wherever you can. So mm. I just feel like Boston College is going to be playing with a chip on their shoulder. There's – Two unbeaten teams in the ACC right now. One is Wake Forest. One is the other is Boston College. Got to throw in the fact that they have played the 123rd ranked schedule so far. So they're not doing necessarily doing it against good teams. But I think ultimately in the ACC, uh, this Phil Jerkovic, Zay Flowers, it could end up being one of the best quarterback wide receivers. Okay, well, let me stop you right there. Both are out. Are you serious? Yeah. Drakovic's out for the season. Zay Flowers is out? He got banged up last week, too. I don't know oh, if he's officially man, out. changes everything. See, that's what I was wondering. When you were getting to all this, you are you're hyping it all up, and I was like, when is he oh, getting to man. the point where they just that's lost? Embarrassing. Yeah. You, you go ahead. I need, <laughs> I need to reevaluate things. So he returned to the game last week, but he got banged up, so maybe Zay, Zay does play this week. He hasn't been ruled out, but... Dracovic has a hand injury and he's he's gone for the year. Oh man, that's a real bummer. Yeah, so give me the Tigers here and Connor Basilek on the road to win and cover. You know what? I'm gonna stick with it. I uh, I think they're gonna be playing with a chip on their shoulder. Okay. 
Drinkowitz throwing that shade. I uh, <laughs> my professional credibility is really shot now, but um, I think hopefully Zay Flowers is healthy because I think he's one of the more dynamic receivers in the ACC. So at home, give me the uh, give me the Eagles. And okay. Moving forward, another we got a three thirty in Jerry World. We got Texas A&M and Arkansas. Texas A&M is a five and a half point favorite. This is our three thirty game with Gary Danielson and Brad Nessler. A&M so far is averaging is allowing seventy seven yards a game passing, which is just absurd. They've also played Colorado, who can't do much of anything offensively, and they've played a couple other cupcakes. They're also 12th in the SEC among SEC teams so far, allowing 162 yards a game Mm. on the ground. And Arkansas, if there's anything they've established so far, is they can play defense and they can run the ball. They're fourth in the SEC in rushing yards a game. They have five guys with over 100 yards rushing so far through just three games. So as a five-point, five-and-a-half-point dog, I'm taking Arkansas all day, and I'm taking Arkansas to win win this game. Wow. Wow. So this is your home dog of the week. I would, it, it looks like it on the sheet, but this is, this is in Jerry World. So they're, oh, yeah, yeah, they don't count. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. We're going to disagree here. Um, A&M looked a lot better this past week. Calzada was a lot more comfortable with a full week of action. Um, he's no Haynes King or Kellen Mond, but he's he's fine. Um, he he could do something that KJ Jefferson cannot do, which is throw downfield, uh, which is important I think in games like this. But like you said, Arkansas has a they employ a lot of different backs, and Sam Pittman talked about that after last week where he he mentioned that they give a lot of equal opportunities and they are going to run five different backs basically the remainder of the season to keep everybody fresh um it's good Traylon burks star um i like the linebackers um for the hogs barry odom's gonna come ready to play the barry odom versus mike elko battle is gonna be appetizing in this one but I, I think AM still just have two high hopes. They still have a lot more talent than this Arkansas team to this point. And I think uh they're they're more they're further along. This is a this is not <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. That first time I That's sneezed true. on this podcast. Thank you. Um I need a sneeze button, cough button on on the on the home home office. But uh no, give me give me the Aggies because the Aggies, unlike the Texas Longhorns, uh will take care of business against against the Hogs. But man, what a recruiting pitch. If Pittman pulls off beating AM and Texas in the same season, that has to make a that has to be important in the recruiting trail, right? You have to be able to hang that. That's like their national title is beating both te- Texas Without schools. Without a doubt. I mean they just I feel like if Arkansas is going to be successful, I would imagine they're going to have to tap in and, you know, make Texas a, a pipeline and get actual big time players from there. Also, Arkansas is getting hosed here because there was an agreement about like a handful of neutral sided games in, in Jerry world. But last year they played at Texas A&M and now this year they're, they're not playing at Arkansas. So it's weird that they're not just going home and home. So but uh, yeah, I just I'm a believer in the pit boss, <laughs> and I just haven't been impressed with A and M so far. So um, and then it's 
still outraged about the following week, Arkansas-Georgia being a noon kickoff. What is that? If they beat A&M, this will be like a top 12 matchup. But True. Do do? Um, and then moving on, we got 330 on Fox. We got Iowa State at Baylor, and Baylor is a 6.5-point home dog. I was close to making this my home dog of the week, but I knew Zeus would never stand for that because Tori has a lot of objections to the way they do things down at Baylor mm-hmm. uh, off the field, including a player that abused a dog a few years back. So they will always be an enemy of, of the household. But um, The Baylor Bears never getting a home dog of the week spot on this yeah, podcast. Never getting it. No. But, uh, I might pick him to win, but they'll never be the home dog of the week. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I respect Chip and Joanna doing their thing down in Waco. But uh, Do but you? Not... Are you a big Chip and Joanna guy, Matt Green? I mean, I don't watch that show a lot, but I respect what they're doing. I you like, like they... you do watch the show. I, I mean, I've seen the show. I'm not against the show. I just, like, if HGTV is on in the household, like, it's quality quality stuff but um oh wait no I'm, now i'm curious matt I'm this is a quick this is a quick 30 second digression here <laughs> what is the uh what what show has tori gotten you into the most that you never would have watched without without her in your life oh it'd be more reality shows mm. like the, um below deck mediterranean have you ever seen that one? i have not it's a it's a quality quality show has she Just gotten like you in people... on the circle or bachelor in paradise no, no, like dating shows or anything. Interesting. The only, one, the only dating type show we watched was that Too Hot to Handle when I talked. I told you about where oh, yeah. they're like not allowed to have sex or mm-hmm. do whatever. Yeah, but um, it's a good show. Yeah. But yeah, HGTV is uh, they put out some quality content here. Can I tell you, my parents actually went to Waco to see them, like see the the whatever it is. I don't not them personally, but like, do they have? I mean, Something... I imagine they have properties all over the place. Yeah. I don't really know how you how you specifically find one of the houses like they renovated or something. I don't well, know no, I think there's works. like a facility or something. I don't know. They went to go see something that they do. Like, I don't know. There's some kind of thing that you can actually go see with them, the fixer-upper stuff. I don't know. They're, my parents literally went to Waco for this reason, and I forgot, <laughs> I forgot what it was specifically. But, yeah, they're big Chip and Joanna guys. Or guys and gals. So. Yeah, respect what they're doing. They, mm-hmm. Baylor's also played the 117th uh, strength of schedule so far mm. in three games. Defense so, is good, um, though. I was looking at the – do you ever go through cfbstats.com? Of course. Yeah, so I was going through that. That You would like that. Have, have I sent you BCS Toys? Oh, I don't know. I've seen that one. Do that one. That's a really good one, too, with a bunch of stats. You would like – I should probably send you all my stat sites for college football. But um, – Baylor, a lot of numbers like Baylor. Jeff Grimes is doing really good coming from from BYU. Remember, he was the one who installed that brilliant Zach Wilson offense last year. Baylor looks like a different team. Dave Randis got that defense looking a little bit different. Charlie Brewer's not in the fold. The offensive line's a little bit better. That being said, Iowa State's still just too good for this program. So give me the Cyclones to win and cover. Yeah, I'm just thinking Matt Campbell, Iowa State. They, yeah, they're not losing this game. They can't lose this game. Like That would just derail a lot of the momentum they have going in the Big 12. Um, and then moving on, another 330, ESPN2. I said we had two undefeated teams CC so far this year through only three games, only two undefeated teams left. And there is still one team without a win in the ACC. Do you know who that is? 
Wait, say that one more time. One one winless team in the ACC. Oh, it's Florida State. That would be the Florida State yeah. Seminoles. They are a two and a half point dog at home versus the Louisville Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And um, at this point, like I'm not gonna pick Florida State to win a game until they show me they can. Like, McKenzie Milt uh, looked Malik, bad last week. Yeah, Malik Cunningham. Like he's he's still not a great passer, but he's a dynamic athlete, and he's got. You know, over 200 yards rushing and six rushing touchdowns. He's got two rushing touchdowns in each of their first three games. He's a dynamic athlete. I just don't think like they had a big win over UCF last Thursday night, and UCF is a better team than Florida State. So give me Louisville. I agree. Louisville to win and cover. Florida State 0 and 4. Man, um, yeah, no Satterfield should win this game and. Louisville's riding a high after that crazy ending against UCF last Thursday. They also will get basically like a week and a half off before this game. They should come ready, to, ready and uh, should should run away with this one. Very good point. Yeah, that was a crazy ending to that game. Um, and then moving on, we got another 330 ESPN. Clemson at NC State. And NC State is a 10-point dog. And I think we all know what Clemson has been here through the first three games of the season. DJ Uyunglele is just, he's thrown just one touchdown and two picks through the first three games. I was tempted to make this my home dog of the week, but mm. like, cause I think NC state is solid and they're at home, but like, I'm still a believer. Like the Clemson defense, I got a stat for you by the Clemson defense. They have still not allowed a touchdown on the year. The Clemson defense has allowed 12 points this season. The Clemson offense has allowed nine. And that's just a pretty absurd stat that I that just almost doesn't seem real. Um, obviously, they gave up the pick six against Georgia and then a safety last week to Georgia Tech. I'm just thinking, with this defense, I just don't know how much NC State is going to be able to move the ball. And surely, surely, don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Clemson is going to be able to go in to Raleigh and knock off NC State. If not, maybe there's there's bigger problems that we're not aware of. If, if Clemson, after not looking good for three weeks, comes out and, and loses to NC State. Because it's one, like, this feels like a trap game in a normal year where Clemson's just kind of cruising along and they're not going to pay attention to NC State. But with them struggling the way they are, like, there's a lot of focus on this game. So I can't I can't see this game sneaking up on them or anything like that. I think they're going to come ready to play, and I think they're going to take care of business and cover. NC State was undefeated on October 20th, 2018, when uh, they went to Death Valley and were fa- I think they faced off against a 7-0, or I guess a 6-0 Clemson Tigers at that point. They lost 41-7. to This is a big game. I remember this being like, are we sure NC State can't win this game? And this is a big moment for this program. They get absolutely stomped. Do you want to guess in the last two meetings between these two schools, because they did not play last year because of COVID, what the total disparity is between the two scores? Oh, man. Did they hang like 50 on, on NC State last year? They didn't play last year. So they played last year in 2019. That. Yeah. Oh, so it's wait, wait. 96, 96 for Clemson, 17 for the Wolfpack in their last two meetings. Mm. 96 to 17. That's not great. No, give me Clemson to win and cover. <laughs> All right. 
and then moving on to the Pac-12, this may have been the hardest game for me to pick the entire uh, on the entire slate. UCLA at Stanford, six o'clock on the Pac-12 network. I don't even know how to find the Pac-12 network. No one does. <laughs> and uh, Stanford is a three and a half point home dog. And I'm looking at this like I don't know which. Are you UCLA gonna do it? I don't know which UCLA team is gonna come is gonna show up. And honestly, just for the fact that Boston College is Phil Dracovic is out, I don't know. It could throw off my whole home dog thing. But I'm kind of a believer in Stanford. Like on the road, I just don't know what UCLA team we're gonna get. And it's Tanner McKee so far this year, completing seventy one percent of his passes, five touchdowns, no picks. I'm gonna go Stanford. At home to uh, to win outright. Ooh, UCLA coming back down to earth. Two and two in your estimation. Yeah, I really I really turned quickly on UCLA. That Fresno that Fresno loss got to me. And Fresno's solid, but I don't know. I uh, I, I I wasn't expecting Stanford to uh, to look as solid as they have in the early going after that uh, season opening loss to Kansas State. I think we've overcompensated now a little bit too much. Stanford, their defense is solid. Um, I saw some crazy stat where it's like, I think, okay, so I think David Shaw is like, I want to say 81 and 18 in games he holds the opposition under 30. It's something bonkers like that. I was reading through different, sorting through different stats for this game. Um, Tanner McKee is good. Dorian Thompson Robinson's good. I just think Stanford the way they win this game is if it's low scoring. So if we tune in and it's midway through the third and it's like UCLA has got 19 points and three turnovers, then we know Stanford's winning this game. This has to be ugly and this has to be low scoring for Stanford to win. I think it's a lot more difficult to keep things low scoring, keep it to what Stanford wants um, to win this game. Like they, they need a lot more help in the parameter department. So give me the Bruins to bounce back here and score enough that Stanford's offense just can't, can't keep up with. Yeah, that's probably a good call. Um, moving on, seven o'clock, ESPN. Your Tennessee Volunteers mm. go to the swamp to face the Florida Gators. Florida is a twenty-point <laughs> favorite <laughs> at home. I know this is your squad, <laughs> Chase. So I will. Uh, I'll let you take this one away. Twenty is a lot of points. <laughs> Twenty is a lot of points. Um. So here's the thing. We still don't know who's starting. By all indications, it's going to be Joe Milton, which would be a mistake in my my Is estimation. That right? I thought it wasn't even a question at this point. I, th- I thought it'd be Hendon Hooker all day. No, they still love Milton in practice. It hasn't been. They haven't pulled the plug completely on Milton yet. Uh, but that day is coming. It's fast approaching. And uh, I mean, look at Florida. They're dealing with the same kind of thing with Emory Jones, who I think still has what two TDs, five picks through three games. Um, doing a lot through his legs but if you're only gonna rely on your legs you have this super human dude behind him um and mr richardson who can do all of that so if you're not gonna throw it downfield anyway what's the point of an emory jones um i don't know i think richardson by all accounts is gonna play in this one that's a problem but one of the things i'm so f- curious about is that florida their run defense is great tennessee i think will struggle to run the ball jabari smallest banged up he didn't play last week um, it should be he should be back. Tion Evans is a growing star. 
Two-headed monster in both backfields here. Curious about that. Both quarterbacks in this game will like to run. They will probably see Hooker and Milton. will probably see Jones and Richardson. Um, Tennessee, I think, has more talent out wide. So I'm curious to see if anybody can get behind these Florida corners because I don't think that's looking pretty great at the moment. Florida's defense looks pretty legit, so I'm curious to see what that looks like. I'm curious to see if Tennessee tries to do a lot of QB QB packages and QB runs because Bama struggled with that. Um, But the key to this game and the key to Tennessee covering, not winning, is if if this run defense holds up. If the run defense is true to these first three weeks and that there is something there, even with two of those games being against Bowling Green and Tennessee Tech, they still stuffed Pitt. Like, the reason they lost to Pitt was because of a multitude of reasons, but by and large, Kenny Pickett threw all over him. Like, Kenny Pickett just looked like a Heisman candidate in that game. Um, Emory Jones is not going to pass all over the Vols. Like, that is not going to happen. Um, Theo Jackson is a stud. The word Tennessee is weakest is at linebacker spot, but... With Butler, with um, with Barron, with Young now in the fold, there's a lot of guys along, along this defensive line who will get inserted in and out. So as much as people talked about the Gators and what they were doing, Rodney Garner, as you know, an elite, elite defensive line coach, and he has worked wonders for this uh, Tennessee defensive line to this point. Worried about the secondary. I think they're going to, uh, down the line, I'm not worried against Florida. So... With all that being said, I think with this kind of matchup and the way this game's going, Tennessee wins, or excuse me, Tennessee covers if Hooker gets the majority of these snaps because I don't think he'll turn the ball over enough to get blown out. But if Joe Milton gets the majority of the snaps, he's going to do some dumb stuff. He's going to cause some turnovers. He's going to get this game blown wide open where Florida covers. So I am going to guess that Hooker gets inserted sooner rather than later in a rivalry game like this and we get Tennessee to keep it relatively close um give me Florida to win Tennessee to cover all right well I could um I could I could see that happening um Tennessee has lost seven straight uh at Florida Mm. and so I think they've won like one of the last what like 14 or 15. Casey Clawson, I think, was the last one to win there. Casey Clawson was the last one to win there back in 2003. So this is going to be a night game in the Swamp. I feel like even though they're coming off a loss, I feel like there's just a lot of positive mojo around Florida right now. Mm -hmm. And with the way they were able to run the ball, like really without doing much through through the air versus Alabama, like, I feel like I I have to see them having a lot of success against against Tennessee on the ground, and I can see this being a close game at halftime, but I think ultimately Florida is gonna gonna pull away, and it this is a big spread, but I'm gonna go with Florida to win and cover. Mm. I'm thinking like a like a thirty. 38-17, 17? Have you watched Josh Heupel? Like, what? 17 from Heupel? I mean, this this Florida defense just held Alabama to, what, 29 points? Mm-hmm. I think Alabama's offense is a lot better than Tennessee's. They don't take the shots, though. Bill O'Brien's not taking the shots. Heupel is going to take the shots that break it open. That's the thing. Is Heupel has more, like, he loves... 
the big play. He loves explosive plays more than anything else. That man lives and dies I mean, by that's explosion. That's fine, but Alabama obviously has a better offense than Tennessee. They do for sure. It's not, it's not even quite debatable. So I feel like mm-hmm. to score, give up two less touchdowns to, to Tennessee than he did Alabama, that okay. seems about right. And maybe score two more touchdowns. It seems about right to me. We'll see. We'll see. Um, keeping it moving, going to the Pac-12. This is a. 7 o'clock, ESPN Plus on this yeah. one. It's, uh, it's going to be tough to, to get that in the rotation, I'll be honest. But um, Kansas You're State, not interested in Spencer Sanders versus Will Howard in this 1917 final? These are like low-key, like two teams I've always liked from the Big 12. Though. Mm. It's like there's something about them. They're like, they're not Oklahoma, they're not Texas, but they're like, they're just kind of cool teams. So I have a question um, for you with this. Over under guy that that's probably what makes me like both of these teams. Over under between Howard and Sanders, the two quarterbacks in this game throw a combined a combined twenty five passes. Over or under. Oh, they'll definitely go over that. Okay, I'm gonna, gonna say, say under. Like thirty. 35, You might have had me. Like I could see them both. You know, nine for fourteen. Something like that, but um, it'll it'll. They would have gone under last week. That's the reason I brought it up. They they threw a combined less than twenty five last week. Is that right? Yes, it is. So yeah, you could be. This game will be played in the trenches. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Kansas State at Oklahoma State. Uh, Oklahoma State is a seven and a half point favorite. Ooh. I got a stat for you right here. Mm-hmm. Kansas State, when ranked the last two years, they are two and three. Mm. You know who those two wins came against? Oklahoma. Why don't you guess who the two easiest wins in the Big 12 would be? The two easiest wins in the Big 12? That would be the Jayhawks. Yeah, the Jayhawks, yeah. So they are 2-3 and three win ranked the last mm. couple of years. You know, they, they get into the top 25, 22, maybe 21 or so. Were they not ranked both times they beat Oklahoma? Yeah, they were unranked both times. Hmm. So the only team they've beaten when ranked the last two years is Kansas. So going on the road in Stillwater, I don't think Oklahoma State is going to win this game by more than seven and a half points. I think it's going to be close. I think it feels like it's going to be 17 to 16 or something like that. It just feels like this game is just going to be a real grinded out type game. And, you know, I'm not really sure who that even, you know, who that benefits because it seems like both of these teams should do that well. But I got to go with the home team. I'm going to go Oklahoma State to win, but Kansas State to cover. Okay. I agree. On both? I do. I agree with you on both. This is one where we agree. All right. And keeping it moving in the Big 12, Oklahoma hosting West Virginia, and they are a 16.5-point favorite. In Norman, we've talked about West Virginia is a completely different team uh, at home versus on the road. And I feel like this is the kind of spread, kind of like I feel like with Clemson, that on a normal year, Oklahoma would be uh, probably more, probably a lot more favored than this. Um, and I feel like I, it's it's an enticing spread because I feel like you're, you're questioning how Oklahoma's playing so far, but... They are 8-0 versus West Virginia since West Virginia joined the Big 12. They scored 50-plus in the last four versus West Virginia. 
Um, can you name the last West Virginia team to beat Oklahoma by any chance? The last? Because, like, they haven't beaten them since they've been in the Big 12, right? They have not. Yeah. Um, but the golden era of West Virginia football, mm-hmm. they did face off in the 2007 season, 2008. Oh, Gino. No. Oh, Pat White. Pat White, yes. Yeah. The Pat White, Steve Slayton, Noel Devine group. When Owen Schmidt was a runaway beer <laughs> truck, do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, they hung like 50, 48-28 West Virginia beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. Fiesta Bowl was not kind to Oklahoma there for a few years. Um, but I, I think... I think people are doubting Oklahoma, so I think they're going to come out, you know, focused in this one, and I think they're going to win big. I think this is going to be like a 48, you know, 21 type of game. I think they're really going to take care of business. So I think they're going to win this game big. Interesting. I disagree. Um, What was the number, though? What was the spread? 16 and a half. Yeah, give me the Sooners to win, West Virginia to cover. West Virginia's defense is legit. They don't travel well. Like, if this was in... Uh, Morgantown, then I'd feel a lot better about that. But I do think Neil Brown's defense is legit. I do think the Mountaineers are going to give the Sooners problems. Spencer Rattler struggled to this point. I'm not convinced yet. Like, I'm not convinced they've worked in Wanya and Gray and those receivers. And I don't know. I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced that Oklahoma has it all ironed out to this point. I feel like they're still in the preseason. So give me, give me the Mountaineers to cover, but Oklahoma to win. That's fair. All right. Uh, and that's all we got for our pick'em. So mm. good luck to you, sir. We'll uh, we'll see how, how this adds on to our to our season record. Off week for Oak Ridge. No Oak Ridge football for me to go to on Friday. And then Tennessee's away. Like I will not be attending any any football games in person this fall after or this fall, this weekend after missing last weekend too, because of illness. This is this is not fun for me. I don't there's only so many Saturdays and Fridays and I uh I don't know. I'm kind of out of luck. I don't like this. Yeah, that's a that's a tough hand, man. You know, you gotta uh, you gotta figure it out. Get to another game. I know. I know. Well, don't forget, folks. We do this twice a week on this very beat. So if you're an Apple Podcast listener, make sure to leave us a five star rating and a review. Follow Matt on Twitter at Matt underscore W underscore Green. Follow myself at Chase Double underscore Thomas. Sign up for the newsletter by going to SportsRenaissanceMan.substack.com chasethomaspodcast.com all that good stuff email us please email us at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com for any college football questions you would like Matt or myself to answer Matt Green that is all I've got my friend Um, do you have anything you would like yeah also shout out to um, Adam Duvall Mm, for potentially costing me the fantasy championship (laughs) I'm in a really close matchup here I don't know if you Uh, saw him tonight First inning hits a three-run bomb and uh, passes the runner in between first and second, so it counts as a two-run single. But um, if I lose this matchup by one RBI or one run, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be mad at Adam Duvall. But he's been solid for me. He had a 500 say. freaking bomb, 500-yard bomb last night. Was it yeah. last night or two nights ago? Where he just wrecked wrecked it. Seems like Adam Duvall goes yard every mm. every night. It's insane how much better he is in a Braves uniform. I'm just amazed at how different our outfield is um, from what it was two months ago with Almonte and everyone else. Man, it was depressing. Like getting well, through and this. They made all of these just boring moves where mm-hmm. they 
traded nothing and just got Jorge you know, Soler, Eddie Rosario. And all these guys have panned out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been pretty great. I'm hoping they can uh, hold off the Phillies, get in the playoffs. They're looking good. They're looking good. But the NL, man. He gets, what, two and a half games right now? So mm-hmm. let's see. I think it's three. Is it is it down to two and a half? I'm not 100% sure. Okay. Um, yeah, either way. Go Bravos. Don't, Don't stop, stop the, the chop. chop. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. Matt Green, thank you so much per usual, my friend. Um, I will talk to you next week. Yes, sir. All right, we are back on this Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and that guy on the other line is still the good, the great, the awesome John Taylor of Fangraphs.com. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you? Not too bad. How are we feeling with your... Uh, we, we're doing our 5.30 recording sessions. This is when, like, for the listeners, I would encourage you to go back a couple weeks and see if you can spot when John and I were recording in the late afternoon versus the the early part of the day because it's a totally different John Taylor. He, he I don't know if it's PEDs, what's going on here, but uh, I am excited for, for these weekly developments. I'm on a very powerful steroid regimen right now. <laughs> it's just the... <laughs> The, I'm gonna try to name. I was gonna try to name steroids, but the only one I could think of is Wistrol, which I don't even think is a steroid. I think I just made that. No, Winstrol. That's what I was thinking of. Mm. Um, which is apparently a steroid for for women. Is it? Yes. Oh no, it's it's just Stanazolol. Okay. Either way, yes. Uh, are there all, all, wait? All are there gender focused steroids? I'm sorry. Are there gender focused steroids? I didn't know this. I would guess i mean that's not, mm. it's not a bad guess right that you would have to have mm-hmm. or that there would be steroids for you know different genders based for based on different purposes but yeah uh, I, I unfortunately my doping regimen doesn't go that doesn't go that <laughs> so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you gotta be careful you gotta be careful out there um john taylor did you know that it is now time for our national pastime stat of the day is this a, is this the historical thing or is this a new thing? Oh no, this is the historical thing. This is what we do to start. Okay. This is how we shake the shake the cobwebs off of uh, of a new new week. Um, you're gonna like this one. Okay. I don't know if this is ever gonna get topped again. In 1912, on September 22nd, the first day of fall. Shout out to fall. Great season. Very pro fall on this podcast. At Sportsman's Park. Against the Browns, Eddie Collins becomes the first player to steal six bases in one game for the second time. The Philadelphia A's, which, okay, second baseman's feat of thievery continues to be the major league mark. Six stolen bases in one game. That's really impressive, and that's I feel safe saying that's a record that's not going to get broken. No. If only because guys just don't run like that anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish they did, right? Do you do you miss this? I do. I mean, I mean, I, that's. I remember when Billy Hamilton was getting called up, and and all the and all the talk about how he was going to be this throwback and a game show. I, I kind of wish that had been the case. I really, I really would have liked to have seen like speed come back into the game because it's always fun to watch guys steal, and it's always fun watching guys go first to third or second to home or you know, f- uh, fly around the bases. So it, it makes me sad that the stolen base really is not as much of a thing anymore. But I, I'd like to think that you know, being that baseball is a, a relatively cyclical sport that at some point 
that particular kind of athleticism will, will come back into the game one way or another. Let's let's hope, but we shall see. We, we need to get Raphael for call on the case. See what he's up to. Yeah. See if we can get him well, involved. It's, it's funny because I was just wondering if this is this is if this is something where baseball was. This is this is totally off the top of my head crackpot theory, but mm. you know if baseball was faster because back in the day the athletes who would normally who would have ended up in in basketball or football or some other sport just kind of defaulted toward baseball anyway. Oh, but, yeah. That, again, crackpot theory based off zero research. And besides, players are bigger, better, faster, and stronger than they ever have been at any point in history. So, um, yeah, it's this is it's it's a strategic thing. I just hope the strategy eventually, you know, wiggles its way back around. Well, speaking of strategy, I feel like you're 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 looking at the, the show sheet here, Mr. Taylor, because there is a strategy um, kerfuffle this week between the blue jays and the tampa bay rays um i'm i'm just i'm rather excited to get your perspective on kevin kiermeyer who just uh, he gave one of the weirder answers as to what happened there and why he kept it and everything else but the data card sheet uh, being picked up the blue jays not happy about it um the the good folks your your co-workers on effectively wild did a great job talking about this today that I was listening to earlier um meg rally and ben Lindbergh. but your your perspective on this uh this weirdness between kiermeyer the rays and the blue jays i mean i did like that when they asked him why he took it he said it's september nothing matters <laughs> which it's it's true nothing really matters in september especially there is a song that literally that is. is wake me up when september ends Thank you, Green Day. Um, mm. Especially for a Rays team that is not that is going to win the division, barring something really, really weird. So yeah, I can understand on his on his end of things. It's really who cares, you know. I, we have some data about the Blue Jays, but that honestly, or was it it's, since he picked it off Alejandro Kirk? It is presumably the Blue Jays data and scouting report conclusions on Tampa Bay hit. Correct. Right? Yes. Yeah. I don't think this is something the Rays wouldn't know anyway. I, mm-hmm. I really doubt that a franchise, especially one as you know, as data driven as the Rays are, wouldn't already know how their own hitters would be pitched by various other pitchers. It, it does make you wonder exactly how much kind of uh, counterintelligence teams do with regards to, well, if we had to face our own team, what would we do, and how you know. So maybe the if there is a any real value to this is being able to see the reality of how of how the, a team like the Jays would approach the Rays versus whatever the Rays you know however the Rays think their hitters are being approached regardless uh, I mean it's it, it's funny that people got kind of tied up this because this is the kind of gamesmanship that you used to see in baseball all the time just old-fashioned sign stealing because I mean look at it this way if this were instead of Kevin Kiermeyer picking up a, a, a card of data or whatever that Alejandro Kirk dropped and this were Kevin Kiermeyer spent the game uh, stealing signs the old-fashioned way, and so happened to know exactly how ta- how the Rays were approaching every Jays or every Rays hitter that day. It's not really all that different. And honestly, there's zero chance that the Blue Jays are going to. I mean, who I don't know who knows exactly what was on that card in terms of the the specifics or the range of it. I kind of doubt that the Blue Jays would have kept using that exact same card forever anyway. And I think that's where Kiermaier saying it's September, who cares, kind of comes into it because it's September. None of this will hold over till October if the Blue Jays and Rays meet again in the wild card game or in some other series. This is just how it's going to be. 
Um, and that's this series against, I mean, the Rays are winning right now. That series is about to be over, and I believe that's the last time the two teams meet this year. So really, there's no value for the Rays in keeping it. Again, uh, aside from, like I said, maybe being able to see how another team's scouting holds up against their own scouting or what they've learned from other teams in terms of scouting. But yeah, it really, it really is one of those kind of September nothing stories where this is just because there's not really any drama right now aside from the AL wild card and the NL West and a little bit the NL second wild card, but really not much. And I, and I know we're going to talk about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't. It's, it's just very silly, and I just really appreciate that Kiermaier's response just captured how pointless this all is, and just goes, "Who cares, man?" You know, this this is just something that people get them people get worked over, get worked up about when there's not really a whole lot going on there. No. Um, I also think somebody would have had a problem trying to get the car back from him if they had to make, if they had to lock eyes with Kermeyer, right? That's like, why I wish it happened that there had just been a huge brawl over the <laughs> car. That would have been so goddamn great. But no, it, it's just some, it's proprietary information that the mm-hmm. Blue Jays presumably are going already in the, or already changed or were never going to hang on to long term. So. Yeah, it's not a thing I think that anyone has to get twisted out of shape about. It's just, like I said, it's nice to see that kind of old school kind of throwback gamesmanship again, though, of just actual sign stealing, literal sign stealing, Mm -hmm. the way it was supposed to be. Do you think it's good that guys are allowed to have these in-game? Sure. I mean, it's it's useful. I mean, that's what they're for. It's just they are useful in terms of helping you figure out, you know, specifics. I mean, I think it's certainly better for guys to have data cards or for example uh catchers to have data cards than it is for them to have to go out to the mound 15 times a game to go over signs uh or to go Mm -hmm. over how do we want to pitch this guy yeah i mean that's just i much prefer that because it theoretically at least makes the game go faster so yeah I'm, i'm for it interesting um but we'll see we'll see what happens there uh going forward but a delight a september delight um the Padres dismissed their farm director this week. A lot of turmoil there. And we can group these together, John, because um, there was obviously the blow up a few days ago um, in the dugout between Machado and Fernando Tatis with Machado really getting upset um, with Tatis. And um, Tatis had just struck out, I believe, prior to that blow up. And um, they were... They were pretty annoyed. Like Machado was pretty, pretty heated about it not being about Tatis and all that. Not really sure all the context there. Um, but I, when I saw it in real time and reading the quotes from Tingler and um, the group, I was like, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't seem all that bad to me. I think it would be weirder if it was a manager doing this to Tatis. But like Machado and Tatis obviously have at least a, a sensible bond tight-knit bond and he was annoyed and frustrated with him and i think with this kind of season that san diego's having just like the injury riddled season from hell tippers flaring from time to time two high paid guys a lot of expectations they're fighting for their playoff lives like all that being on the table i don't know it's not all that surprising and i also think it was just kind of probably overblown and that this probably happens a lot more than people realize just usually in the clubhouse not not in the dugout but it is interesting that that happened and then uh, more changes for the Padres because, um, I don't know, the the farm system has been pretty good. It's the reason they were able to make all these trades and bring in all this talent that unfortunately has not been able to stay healthy. Um, but that was because of Preller and this organizational staff that has just been elite at uh, farm development and then 
putting these prospects for guys like it's just bad injury luck i i don't know we we how many times you can just say bad injury luck but that's really the, the story for san diego because you and i talked before the pod or before the season that we didn't disagree with anything here <laughs> like we we love their off season like i think two things to be true they had a perfect off season and everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong this year like that is just unfortunately how sports happen sometimes because the games still have to be played even if you do everything right off the field um i don't know i just threw a lot at you john but what do you make of all that yeah i I mean i agree with you that the machado tatis thing is really i mean this stuff happens when teams uh struggle like this it's just tempers get tempers get big uh emotions get big things get heated and and guys just blow up out of frustration and and i think you can understand what machado was doing there i think the the substance of it was telling the tatis you know you cannot afford to get yourself run right now you're not the only guy who's frustrated this is Mm -hmm. you know this is not just about you and like you said this is between two guys who are very clearly close so i don't really i I think i agree too if this were tingler uh jace tingler you know lighting lighting tatis up publicly that's one thing uh, especially because Tingler already has had a couple instances where he has not been the most public backer or defender mm-hmm. of his all-star shortstop. But I think this is, I mean, this and this is this too is it's a veteran and well, it's interesting. It's a veteran in the form of Machado who has obviously worn complaints in the past about being about not being you know uh, kind of aggressive enough, not being not hustling hard enough, but you know being the veteran guy to tell a young player, hey quit it knock it off like you know this is not the time to throw a tantrum that it came out as an argument i'm sure is not ideal but ultimately i i don't think this affects anything you know because like you said this is this this is the stuff that happens when a team season goes wrong and the padre season has gone very wrong in the second half they've been one of the worst teams in the second half um obviously are not going to make the playoffs at this point barring a, a complete collapse on the cardinals part or a total surge on san diego's part which is kind of hard when you're rolling out, you know, Vinny Velasquez and formerly Jake Arrieta to start your games. So, and, and you know, I, I don't think this necessarily carries over. And I and I agree, you know, if we go back and look at San Diego's offseason, I don't think we necessarily change anything. A lot of what happened was just injuries that they couldn't control and, and poor performance that I don't really know that necessarily anyone saw coming. I think the question for San Diego is, you know, what do you do for next year to kind of build on this? And the good news for the Padres is, with the exception of, I believe, Tommy Pham, he is their notable, if not only, major free agent uh, for next winter, at least in terms of a guy with serious money coming off the books. You know, obviously, they're going to bring back the majority of that core. They will have uh, Mike Clevenger back coming off Tommy John's surgery. Uh, they will have a lot of their other. They had lost a lot of pitchers to Tommy John surgery. If you look up um, just their season on a whole, so I, I'm not too worried about the Padres going forward. I guess the question is, and, and kind of on top of that, with their farm director getting relieved or being told he was not going to be brought back, kind of what is kind of next for this team? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think the farm system thing is a little more notable, although I'm not really sure what to make of it because we obviously don't have the the inside scoop on how the Padres front office has kind of handled all this. I do wonder if the combination, if just the fact that this team really did not seem capable of providing farm system help during the season. I mean, anytime you're reduced to signing guys like Arietta and Velasquez off waivers that late in the season, that's really not really doesn't say good things about your player de- about your in-season player development 
obviously the biggest one there was Mackenzie Gore, who came into the season as, you know, a lot of people saying, like, yeah, he's the sixth starter or the seventh starter. You know, if one of these guys gets hurt or, or underperforms, we can just easily bring him up. He's a top prospect. Instead, he, you know, really struggled in double A to the point of getting sent back down uh, to A ball to work on his mechanics for a while. He's slipped out of the Fangraphs top 100. It's an open question at this point as to how, you know, whether or not he actually will meet the prospect hype he, he was kind of touted for the last two seasons. And I don't think that the that the Padres farm director, um, Sam Gini, is getting pushed out just because of Mackenzie Gore. But I do think Gore is emblematic of kind of what's been a tough season on the farm for them just in not being able to provide that major league help. You saw it also, also with uh, with guys like Ryan Weathers or the fact that, you know, you look at their bullpen or roster right now. And there's a lot of guys from out of the organ that they've had to pluck from out of the organization really out of nowhere in the last few weeks and months. You know, whereas, you know, you would, I mean, and some of this too, like I said, is injuries. Adrian Morajon is hurt. Chris Paddock is hurt. Michelle Baez is hurt. Um, a lot of their important relievers like Drew Pomeranz and Keona Keller are hurt. It would be really hard for any organization to be able to keep filling holes uh, just from just using internal reinforcements like that. But definitely if you want to, you know, if, if when the obit of the 2021 Padres is written, which will be sooner rather than later, I think a lot of people are going to point to they never really got help from inside the organization when those holes started popping up. And now now on top of that, not only that, but also the Padres farm system has turned over pretty substantially in the last couple of years, in part because Preller has moved so many of those former top prospects. So I wonder, too, if, you know, with kind of a uh, farm system rebuild kind of on the way, which, you know, now the better prospects are, with the exception of C.J. Abrams and Luis Camposano, are all the way down closer to low A, rookie ball, that kind of thing. If Preller didn't just feel like maybe this is a time just to get a new voice and a new set of eyes uh, going forward for the future, because for the most part, the farm system that had been built previously over the last few years is pretty much gone. A lot of those guys have either graduated or been moved or have, you know, uh, or are still just hanging around but kind of slowly making their way up. So I think it makes sense there to say, okay, now let's, you know, it's a new, it's basically a new farm system now, or if not a new farm system, at least one that is, it's a different looking farm system. Maybe we need to try a different voice here. Maybe we need to try to change something about our player development because, you know, so obviously you can point to a guy like Tatis as one of the greater player development successes of the last who knows how long. But on the other side of things, you know, especially pitching-wise, I think the Padres are probably wondering what's going on here because, you know, we had all these great arms in our system and injuries took away a lot of them, but they the rest just are not producing, I think, as... That's as what well. happens across the league. The Braves are some of it. Like, that literally league, is the most common thing. And that, like, you know, Saris wrote about this where we're, like, we're having this like just all the older pitchers are performing well like the mortons of the world are just having this this resurgence late in their career w wainwright's 40 you were tweeting about it like this dude no velocity just all off speed stuff it's just working for him but like young pitchers like teams aren't even drafting high school guys anymore it's a really great piece so if people have not uh checked that out on the athletic.com go ahead and do so um you know it's great and it uh it outlined all this right like developing pitching is the hardest thing right like young players are exceeding like young uh, positional players are raking right now three of the top 10 players uh from a hitting standpoint are all under the age of 24 that is absolutely far from the truth in the pitching department like that is a complete different thing um so i don't know i feel bad for farm directors or farm 
uh, front office people where they're tasked with like developing and picking the right three to four arms over a four to five year stretch and then having to hit on all those guys because most teams don't teams hit on the positional guys they just don't hit on that yeah most teams don't player development is a minefield but pitching development in particular is a minefield because these guys get hurt all the time right and I mean, I don't, I don't, I haven't read Eno's piece, so I can't say. I don't know if he has a thesis in particular as to why these older guys are more. You were seeing more kind of uh, more elder success. I guess. He does. So, like, yeah. what he says is basically spin over velocity. And, yeah, and I was, yeah. I was going to say, without having read it, my guess would be that these older pitchers are guys who know, now that they no longer have velocity, or in the case, in some cases, never really had it. It is so much about location and spin and perceived spin mm-hmm. and seam shift and like. All the all the much kind of more under the surface stuff that they're just I mean the the and young hitters don't know what to do with that they're so used to velocity and high velocity that they're kind of overwhelmed by the older pitchers sure and I think there's also something to be said that older pitchers know better at least how to do stuff like locate execute Mm -hmm. sequence all that stuff that you learn over time as a pitcher and like granted like you know Wainwright and Morton are freaks and 10 million different kinds of ways. Morton literally gained velocity as he got older. That's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous to think about. But those are two guys, especially, who have been known throughout the league for how smart they are as pitchers, mm-hmm. how how they approach their starts, how they approach each each hitter and each plate appearance, how careful and precise they are with their location, with their you know with everything they do. But yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me to see them succeed. And I don't necessarily think that this is going to um, create some kind of new revolution where you know, teams are going to start shying away from younger arms and only targeting older guys. But I do think there is something to be said about, yeah, youth has its benefits just in terms of the stuff and the velocity and just the, you know, the kind of, you know, just the sheer advantages of physical youth. But yeah, I think pitching is one of those things where the older you get, the smarter you become at it. And this Padres pitching staff, with the exception of you Darvish, is a young one. You know, this is not a pitching staff that has a whole ton of experience. And it's also not a pitching staff that has uh, a whole lot of health, a whole lot of steady health in the past, which obviously doesn't help. But yeah, it's, I mean, I, yeah, it, it, it's very hard to get pitchers to hit. But I think if you're San Diego coming out of the last few years where you've had one of the five best farm systems in the majors, and especially with guys like Gore and Denilson Lamette and Baez and Morajon and Paddock and, you know, so on and so on and so forth. I think there would be the expectation is we're supposed to be better than this. And the injuries are a part of that. And there's no way in, there's no way to say they're not. But at the same time, those guys, even when healthy, uh, have not particularly produced. Not, it's not just this year. It's last year as well that, you know, you're not really seeing pitching-wise a whole lot come out of San Diego that's been useful lately, with the exception of Darvish for the second half of last year and most of the first half of this year, and Joe Musgrove, who's been good but obviously is not a, is not a homegrown player for them. Yeah. Um, John, I texted you a couple days ago where I was I was upset because I saw John Lester and Yadier Molina embracing after a Cardinals win. And uh, obviously, Lester's a great story. Um, you have a long history with Lester, Boston Red Sox legend, um, Cubs legend, and... Nationals legend. Nationals legend. And now I'm I'm really concerned that we're on our way to the Cardinals winning the World Series this year. I'm, I'm getting more and more concerned. I don't know how they did it again. I don't know how they bamboozled us. The The devil magic out of St. Louis is at it again, John. Um, 
are the because yeah, that's just that's what they do is it, uh, like what is happening here is this do we just resolve ourselves like how much are the dodgers just sweating bullets right now they have to be because if there's any i mean think about how much worse this would be for dodgers fans if they hadn't won last year mm-hmm. still hanging on to that drought and facing the prospect of a one-game win-or-go-home against a franchise that has spent the last decade and a half stomping on their nuts. So, I mean, it's the card. On the one hand, it's it's really tempting just to throw your hands up and go, it's the Cardinals, what do you expect? Like, they just do this. Um, but part of I mean, they're, they obviously have been a lot better in the second half, so credit to them. They have been able to take advantage of collapses from the Mets and the Padres that have more or less wiped out any real wild card competition with the exception of Cincinnati. And as much as we, I think, appreciated Cincinnati going for it in the offseason, that was a team that was pretty flawed throughout the year and just never really seemed to get on track. So, yeah, the Cardinals have benefited from what has been a pretty weak slate of, com- of opponents and competitors for the second wild card. On the other hand, they've done the work. I mean, part of the reason the Padres and Mets are nowhere near the second wild card is because in the last two weeks, the Cardinals more or less put an end to that. Uh, They beat them, they swept the Mets, and then they swept the Padres. Uh, And on top of that, they've won a bunch of games against the Reds in September as well. So they've done done their work against their closest opponents. Uh, We ran a piece today on Fangraphs from Kevin Goldstein looking at the kind of in-depth reasons how the Cardinals have come back to it. Part of it, like you mentioned, is just better pitching. Lester is part of that. Obviously, Adam Wainwright. Uh, Jay Happ has been useful at the very least since coming over from the Twins. Uh, a large part of that, too, is just getting guys like Johan Oviedo and Kwang Young Kim and Carlos Martinez out of the rotation where they have been very bad for the most part when they were in the when they were appearing. Um, but especially, too, you got to look at the bullpen has been a lot better. Uh, it went from being one of the worst units in baseball in terms of Fangraphs wins above replacements in the first half to being roughly middle of the pack. That's a huge jump. Uh, the rotation similarly has improved, and especially the offense that went from being, again, a bottom 10 offense in the majors in the first half to being top 10 in the second. A lot of that is Paul Goldschmidt coming back to life, is Tyler O'Neill having a, a hot second half, and the Cardinals making the decision to bench Paul DeYoung for Edmundo Sosa, who has been very good at shortstop, both better, better both defensively and offensively. So there have been some real changes there that have, you know, that are why St. Louis is where it is. Uh, it's not just Cardinals devil magic, but I will say that if the Cardinals do make the playoffs, and yeah, we all do kind of need to resign ourselves to the fact that they're probably going to win the pennant because it's the Cardinals and that's what they do. And we're also going to get a Cardinals Giants NLCS is going to make all of us just roll our eyes and <laughs> you know, just burrow their way through the backs of our heads. Uh, I don't, I don't like any of this. I just like that the Cardinals and Braves are not going to meet. That that is not a possibility. I mean, truthfully, if if the current NL playoff picture is what it is now, which is Atlanta, Milwaukee. San Francisco, the Dodgers, and St. Louis. All of those teams have been, both been in the playoffs recently and have had recent playoff success. Mm. So, not to be devil's advocate on the side of the Cardinals, but for all the crap the Cardinals get about they're always here and they're so boring and we're tired of seeing the Cardinals, with the exception, really, of the Giants, we've seen these same teams over and over for the last few years. We've seen the Dodgers, this is now, I believe, 10 straight postseasons we've seen the Dodgers. Mm. And, like, yeah, the Dodgers are a cool, fun team with cool, fun players. But the Cardinals have cool, fun players, too. Nolan Arenado is cool. I really like to see Paul Goldschmidt succeeding. Adam Wainwright. I love what Adam Wainwright's doing. They're cool guys on that team, too. You're a big Adam Wainwright guy. All all these NL teams have been around forever because the NL, I think, even more than the AL, is very much divided into haves and have-nots. And the Cardinals are very much kind of on the outer edge of being haves. 
but there is they're a legitimate team anyway. They've been very le- they've been a legitimate contender in the second half. And really, hey, I mean, I'd rather see a good, competent team get in like St. Louis than a team like Cincinnati or the Mets, which would be a little more entertaining, but is also just going to be a train wreck for as long as they happen to be in it. At least the Cardinals can hold their own in a lot of respects. No, I'm not doing this. I'm not talking myself no, into the Cardinals being a great story. Not You're not doing this to me, John. Into this. Mm-hmm. I, will just, I will just say for Cardinals fans, or at least the ones who are not currently sending letters to Darren Wilson's prison. Or, <laughs> Darren Wilson's not even in prison. Jeez, that's the worst part. At least the ones who aren't currently sending, sending letters to their Congress people and senators uh, talking about stopping the steal. Mm. I will defend those good Cardinals fans by saying this team you know, deserves to be there as much as any other team. And if you're going to complain about, oh, we always see the Cardinals, I'm so tired of the Cardinals, we always see the Dodgers, we always see the Braves, we've seen the Brewers now, I believe, three straight postseasons. Mm-hmm. They're pretty boring, too, in some regards. I'm uh, No offense, but I find the Braves to be terminally dull. Yikes. Yikes, Especially John. when there's no Acuna. Drive-by over here. This was not yeah. necessary. It's, I'm sorry, is, is Jorge Soler leadoff machine? Eddie Rosaro, the cycle king? Is that is not more, enough for you? Is there really, do you re, is there really more interest in seeing Atlanta go forward than St. Louis? Absolutely. And, I, and hey, could there be some bias there? No, there couldn't. <laughs> but... Look, uh, both those fan bases are January 6th rallies. <laughs> so it's not like there's a better group of people to root for in this. Yeah. But Well, hold on, John. Yeah. If that were the case and the Braves would not the the Braves would have not uh moved to okay no they they did move to Cobb County um no can't do it you know what's also amazing about all of this John do you know what's happening outside of the the sports renaissance man's office at the moment uh Yachty Molina petitioning you for a hall of fame vote very very close very close um a big ass cardinal has been just peering at me through the through the window for the see, last you see what you get for for talking shit is now the the spirit of the cardinal i need Ray to take Lake a picture and send it to you I, i'm not kidding <laughs> i'm not kidding but um he has been staring at me like directly um i was actually i was gonna mm-hmm. say brian jordan but brian jordan was also a brave he was and he's also like a braves broadcaster slash analyst so brian brian jordan will not hurt you but ray langford might mm. Was Kenny Loft never? I'm trying to think. What other Braves? I don't Ron think he was ever on the Cardinals. Ooh, Ron Gant. Was he a Cardinal ever? What about Terry Pendleton? Mm. Oh, what about? Oh, here's a guy. You ready for a member? Some guy, Reggie Sanders. Mm, that's a good one. He was definitely on the Cardinals. I remember him on the Cardinals. Yeah. See, there we go. Let's remember some guys. Um. I just lost my train of thought. Now I'm thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> Edgar Renteria. And, and, okay. Anyway, we before I go down that, out. let's remember some guys. Rabbit hole um anthony ghosts 100 miles per hour john is this the best story uh since the inverse uh with rick and keel i mean it's cool mm-hmm. i remember going to astros spring training would have been four or so years ago now in florida four or five years ago and ghost being there because he was at the time a non-roster invite i think with houston because he had just decided he was going to go from being a hitter to a pitcher and I remember Houston PR telling reporters he doesn't want to talk about it. And in fact, for as far as I know, he has barely, if ever, talked about it with the press since really making that decision. Ghost, I think, was had always kind of come off as a private guy who didn't really like talking to the press. So I, I don't really know terribly much of the details, especially because he's floated in and out of the league over the last few years and I think hasn't been in baseball for the most part for the last couple 
but no, it's it's a very cool story, and you know, especially if it can. I mean, you would think if any group of player, if any group of hitters would have the best chance really to do the pitcher thing, it'd be outfielders because their arms are alongside middle, mm-hmm. league, alongside shortstops and third basemen, supposed and catcher is supposed to be the strongest of the strong. So it makes sense, yeah. We get the we get the reverse and keel. I mean, I'm I'm rooting for Ghost. I I hope he makes it happen. It's always cool to see that. What I'm curious about is is he gonna is he gonna be a two way guy or is he just a full time pitcher at this point? I would assume full time pitcher, right? Yeah, because I think I know that for the most part there was a short there was a brief period of time when it seemed like we were gonna get more two way players and more attempts at two way players. But aside from Otani, none of those guys have particularly stuck. I remember Jared Walsh tried it in the minors and it didn't work out. Um, I remember uh, this guy who played for the Rangers and went to the White Sox, big burly guy whose name I don't remember. He tried it and it didn't work out. I assume Ghost gave it a shot and it didn't work out. I remember there was a catcher who used to be on the Padres, Christian Betancourt, who tried it out and it didn't work yeah. out. Yeah. Um, proof positive that being a two-way player is very, very hard. Proof positive that Otani is a wizard of some mm-hmm. kind, that he can do both of these at an extremely high level. But, yeah, good for Ghost. I'm, I'm, it's cool that he made it back, and I, I hope he finds success. It's You know, you always love stories like that of guys who wash out and manage to find their way back in, especially when they have to do position change. That's, that's always cool as hell. Yeah, I agree. Um, Salvi, he broke uh, Johnny Bench's record. Did you see the... the, the uh, the video with Bench congratulating Mr. Perez. I did not, but it's nice to it's nice to hear about that. I'm glad mm-hmm. that Bench is not one of those old guys who is. He actually likes the game. Yeah, he not only does he like the game, but he's actually complimentary to mm-hmm. and happy for the guys in the game now who are doing stuff better than he and his compatriots did back in their day. Because there's so many old guys who are like, oh well, if you took Sally Perez back in the <laughs> 70s and made him play Johnny Bench's schedule, where he had to catch a hundred. First of all, Sally Perez does play Johnny Bench's schedule for all intents and purposes. I know that there is a bit of an asterisk on the home run record he set because uh, he did not play all of those games at catcher, or he didn't play as many games at catcher to get there as Bench did. So technically, Bench is still the record holder because Salvi has played a lot of those games as a DH. But the fact that Bench himself recognized it should suggest that that doesn't really matter. And at the same time, there's not a single other catcher in the league with maybe the exception of Yadi Molina um, who you're going to say is any tougher than Sally Perez. He plays, he has played every day for what seems like five or six years straight. He has played through serious injuries, concussions, everything you can imagine happening to a catcher. He keeps on doing it. He has somehow become a better hitter or at least a more powerful hitter. I personally think he just absorbed Molina's life force. <laughs> and just, he is now the new Yadi Molina in that he's mm-hmm. also going to have an extremely irritating Hall of Fame case. It's going to be 10 times weaker by the end of his career. But, I mean, good for Sally and, and good for the Royals, too, who I know we talked about them a bit last week with regards to Dayton Moore's kind of front office shakeup or read. But, yeah, they don't have a whole lot of great stuff to build on. I don't know. Have you looked at the top of their, their lineup, like their top six? And this is without Bobby Witt Jr. coming up yet. Have you have you perused that recently? I mean, it, there's there are useful players. There's certainly, like, Adalberto Mondesi has, has uh, upside. Witt Merrifield is a good player. Nicky Lopez uh, is good. Andrew Benintendi has been fine. But, like, a yeah. lot of those guys, like, Benintendi's ceiling at this point is very clearly just league average hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merrifield is getting older. Mondesi has a lot to prove with regards to durability and being able to get on base. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter Dozier has been up and down since his last good season. I mean, he's bad now. Ball. He's just, like, he's. I think he's been batting ninth lately. Yeah, like, the, a lot of things have gone wrong in terms of player position development for the Royals. Uh and granted, Sally Perez doesn't really count as that because he's been in the league for a while now. 
but it does at least give them a solid building block in terms of next year and going forward. And more importantly than anything, he's very clearly the face of the franchise at this point. Mm. And that has its own value, too. It's just this guy who is very clearly going to be a royal for life and is beloved by the fans and beloved by the team and beloved by his teammates. Yeah, it's, it's great. No wonder Johnny Bench likes him. He, he, for all intents, I mean, he's not Johnny Bench. So like There's that great Sparky Anderson line about don't embarrass anybody by comparing them to Johnny Bench. Mm. But, I mean, for what value he's brought to that franchise and the role he's had not just this year but in the years previous and the role he's going to have in the years going forward – yeah, he's a he's a great player and you know not a Hall of Famer by any stretch, but a very cool thing to see Sally Perez just do what he's doing, especially after I think after a couple years ago when it looked like he was on the verge of of just turning into scrap metal. That you know it's really nice to see him kind of make that rebound. I, I wonder too if having that half season last year, the same way it seems to have been the case for a lot of those Giants hitters, kind of helped give him a mid career just breather in not having to catch an entire season, not having to play three straight months in the summer, and just getting a little bit more of a break. You know, I, I do wonder if that has made a difference for a lot of the older guys in the league, is just having that half season instead of a full. Absolutely. Um, are you big... Is is John Taylor a big Shane Baz guy? I love Shane Baz. I mostly love him because I can't believe that even beyond Austin Meadows and T- Tyler Glasnow, that Chris Archer trade is going to get even worse for the Pirates. <laughs> It's even with Glasnow blowing his arm out, that trade is already a disaster from start to finish, and Baz is just going to take it to another level of bad. That that is a Joe Nathan AJ Pierzynski for Boof Bonzer, or was it the that was the old Francisco Liriano trade rather? Whatever the exact pieces were, that is the that is a new version of that for our generation. Because boy, was that a disaster every way through for the Pirates, but. Yeah, I like Shane Bass. Didn't get to see his start uh, the other day, but very much like Shane Bass. Okay. Are we worried about Carlos Rodon? I mean, if only because his velocity has cratered in his last few starts. He very clearly is not fully healthy. I mean, I... What I would you do if you're the White Sox? It, but that rotation went from... We have three aces at the top of it, as it looked in May, with Lance Lynn, Lucas Giolito, and Carlos Rodon, to we have Lance Lynn, we have Giolito, who is just not been him fully himself i think since coming back from the injured list and we have rodone who has not fully been himself since coming back from the injured list so if you're the white Sox, i think you're a little worried at this point that your rotation is a little on the shaky side between giolito struggling rodone struggling who knows exactly what you're going to get out of dylan cease at any given point and you know lynn is obviously a great you know number one to have but yeah, if I'm the White Sox, I'm a little worried about what this rotation looks like in the postseason. And it does really seem like it's going to mean you're going to have to lean on that bullpen even harder than you probably already were planning to. Yeah, I, I, I'm i pretty concerned about the White Sox. But the good thing for them is the AL is not as terrifying as the NL. Um, no, I mean, the, the bad news for them is that uh, barring Tampa just taking the last week or so of the season off, they're also going to get Houston in the first round. That's not great. Which... Is not ideal. I mean, that's... that's it's ideal too- for fans, though. I can't wait to watch that. No, and that's... Talk about pitching matchups. Zach Granke versus Lance Lynn. Lucas Giolito versus Lance McCullers. Uh, Dylan Cease versus... Luis Garcia? Well, either way, it's... it's And all those hitters. Oh, my goodness. Those, those games are going to be... That's... If that is what that first-round matchup ends up being, just I'm just trying to kind of... I mean, leaving the wild card results aside, man, that I I think that's going to be my first round series to watch right there. Chicago, Houston is fun. That is going to be a lot of fun. I hope it goes to full five. 
Mm, I agree. I agree. Um, any final thoughts on the Red Sox before we wrap up here? Braves, everything's fine. We're going postseason I hunting mean, the, again. The Braves, yeah. Yes, you are going to the postseason. Yeah. Uh, I would like to know whether you think the Braves lose after blowing a 2-1 lead in the <laughs> first round or a 3-1 lead in the second round. <laughs> What like what what is that for? Just because your team fell apart at the end, that that Look, just means Red Sox that are still in it. Look, they're gonna oh, they're still in a wild card game mm. that is going to put me in the hospital one <laughs> And then regardless of who wins mm-hmm. that game, they're gonna get stomped all over by Tampa. Who I've, I'm just I am I don't I haven't thought about postseason picks yet in in full because obviously we don't know the full you know who's exactly gonna make it. But I don't I don't really see any reason to pick against Tampa. At any rate I do. Point. Like, Houston. What? Doing that. They always make me look stupid. Mm. I'm not going to look stupid at the hands of Tampa Bay anymore. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, at least the Red Sox are beating the teams they're supposed to beat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is what it is. They have a weaker schedule down the stretch than the Yankees do, which is obviously helpful. Um, they do have that three-game series in Boston. Excuse me, coming up at the end of the week that – or coming up in a few days, rather, starting in a couple days, that will – probably if nothing else make or break than the yankees and if the red sox take that series pretty much guarantee a postseason spot i would feel like or if not guarantee at least put them in a very very good position but i don't know i mean i'm feeling mildly optimistic but at the same time this is not a red sox team that i see winning a championship so you know miss the playoffs one you know one game and out win the wild card round and lose the Rays. whatever it happens to be i'm not I don't have my expectations built up for a long run. I really would just like to see them not fall completely out of the playoffs and also not lose in the playoffs to the Yankees. That would be super ideal for me. But, you know, I uh, beggars can't be choosers, and definitely the second half of this Red Sox season has felt like a lot of begging. I like that the Brave season is uh, being defined by the third-best positional player potentially winning an MVP. Yeah, Austin Riley's not going to win the NL MVP. I don't know. People are talking, John. No, it's not happening. People are talking. 30-plus no. homers? Absolutely not. I don't know. No. Strong Troy Gloss vibes over there? Just No. I mean, did, did you pick Troy Gloss because they're both tall? <laughs> baseman? You did, didn't you? Uh, he's like the perfect blend between um, Chipper Jones and Troy Gloss, for being honest well, like this this is the thing right like mm-hmm. if you're saying austin riley is the nl mvp what are you doing for starters about and granted i, I imagine mm-hmm. riley has more uh, plate appearances in total and more just overall production but what are you doing about juan soto uh sobbing uh or tatis mm. or bryce harper harper i think actually has a really really good case I think, I mean, I think Harper is the NL MVP. I was going to say, I think if I had to make my pick today on this podcast, I'd probably pick Harper. Yeah. Um, People will not like is, that. I mean, even, even among the Braves, do you, do you think Austin Riley is more the, is more the MVP than Freddie Freeman is? No. And I guess that's the thing. If, if Austin Riley is not the MVP of his own team, I but that's why I think it's funny. The MVP of the NL. When I see this, I'm like, Austin Riley's the third best, and that's being like, Albie's has been awesome. Like you can make the case of what Albie's stabilizing the top of the lineup and just being a different kind of threat, um, even with Acuna out. Um, uh, you know who it's not? Kevon Smith. <laughs> well, I mean, why would it be? He's. Uh, did you know he was in the bottom five in baseball savant um, players? Who I think I think I, I ran the numbers on i i just sometimes i go down these rabbit holes on baseball savant i don't know if you do this but um i went back through and he is uh what i think he had the worst he was in the bottom five of positional players who uh 
got a hundred, at least hundred bats in WRC plus. Yeah, that doesn't. I mean, the dude's a third string, if even that catcher. I remember he was I one of the worst catchers I've ever, ever, I, ever, I, ever watched. As I interviewed a, yeah. him once for a story about September call-ups because he was one of those players who, I guess, before the rules changed, and mm-hmm. that's way less of a thing you can do now, but he was one of those players who made his Major League debut as a September call-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember talking to him. He was on the White Sox at that time. Matt Davidson was a guy I was thinking of, by the mm-hmm. way. He tried to be a player, but didn't yeah. make it work. He was also on that White Sox team a few years ago. Yeah, I remember Smith was very nice to talk to. Um, he I might be. He also Nothing against him as a person. Nobody really wanted to talk to the White Sox third-string catcher. Yeah. Nothing against him personally, just as a player. Just uh, yeah, he's just he's just one of those guys where it's like if you see his name, the first thing you're thinking is, oh man, this guy's terrible. Which just one of the worst hitting catchers I've ever seen. Yeah, it's what happens to backup catchers. They all, you know, some catchers are Johnny Bench and some catchers are Kevin Cash. <laughs> you know, it's it is the it is the dichotomy of catchers. John Taylor, we can keep up with all the good folks at Fangraphs.com. If you are not already a Fangraphs.com member. Make sure to go ahead and become a member today. Um, we can find you on Twitter, John, at yes. J.A. Taylor. Sorry to blow up your, your mentions the other day when I retweeted you? your, uh, um, what was it? It cracked me up. Oh, Wicked Witch of the West, bro. Um, oh, retweet. yeah. Yeah. To be, I mean, like that, that to me says plenty. I think just the fact that that jumped in my head about the Machado Tatis thing is like, yeah, that wasn't serious because if in your mind it just sounds like a viral vine or whatever the Wicked Witch of the East Bro clip originally was, it can't be that serious. That that clip will never not be funny. I could watch that every day for the rest of my life, and it would still never not make me laugh. Yeah, it's it's a good callback uh, viral video. Absolutely, John Taylor. I will talk to you next week, my friend. Absolutely. Later, dude. All right, the Wednesday edition of the Chase Most Podcast rolls along where I am now joined by Daniel Dash. Fun name to say fast. Daniel Dash of the Michigan Daily up there in Ann Arbor. The undefeated Michigan Wolverines where we have all decided collectively that Michigan is back. They're going to compete with Ohio State. They're going to compete with Iowa. They're going to compete with Wisconsin, with Penn State. No question. Things are fine. Josh Gaddis is great. Don Brown's out. There's nothing, nothing to see here in Ann Arbor. Things are running smoothly. Give Harbaugh another extension. Daniel, good afternoon. How are you? Doing well. What about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Are you how, like what is what is the uh, what is the feeling on campus right now in Ann Arbor? Are people all are they are they ready to get hurt again? Uh, I think they're always ready to get hurt. Um, <laughs> I'll admit that coming into this season, I, I was really down on this team. Uh, I predicted six and six, seven and five at best. Uh, just really didn't see how they were going to lose as much as they did overhaul the scheme on the defensive side of the ball and put a, a competitive product on the field. Um, I was really, really looking forward to using the Washington game as a measuring stick mm-hmm. until we found out that Washington's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that they went out and trounced arkansas state last week no washington's uh, terrible john donovan has just uh run that offense into the absolute ground no washington's terrible we can, yeah. we can say that no i think that that was a pretty easy conclusion to draw when they dropped the opener at home to montana um but i, I think that i mean in general these expectations for the michigan football team were you know pretty mild this year compared to some other years of the, the harbaugh era and i think that while the first three weeks are promising there's still a a long way to go 
Uh, I think that Rutgers at home this week is a, a pretty easy on-ramp into the Big Ten season. I think that the Scarlet Knights made it a, a bit easier for Michigan by you know going out paintballing a couple nights ago. And now they have two starting defensive backs suspended. One is Max Melton, a, a standout freshman who's been arguably their best defensive player through the first three weeks. Uh, I, I think Michigan as of now is a 20-point favorite, so I think a lot of people expect them to just cruise at home and then next week they go to Madison. And that's uh, that's where the, the true colors will show, so to speak. I haven't even looked at uh, the spreads for this weekend. I didn't realize they were going to be a 20-point favorite over Rutgers because Rutgers looked yeah. okay, looked a little feisty through no, the first weeks. No, I think that they've made uh, pretty big strides and, more importantly, pretty quick strides. Mm-hmm. I think that it's a, a program that's coming together pretty fast. And I see right now they've got a, a really good 2022 recruiting class. Yeah, I mean, there's Rutgers all over the Big Ten. You got Art Tukowski over there in Champaign. Oh, yeah. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so is Cade, like, Cade McNamara, he's not he's not the flashy name. He's not the one that, like, he's not a J.J. McCarthy. He's not a uh, Shea Patterson. He's not a Joe Milton. He's not a high upside guy. What he is just... He seems like he's just competent. He's stable. He's a bridge guy. He's he's doing all the things that Michigan needs to do at least for this year to exceed your expectations of six and six and seven and five. Um, mm-hmm. If you were to explain to someone who has not watched a lot of Michigan through three weeks, what is Cade doing well this season? Yeah, I think the first word that comes to mind is steadiness. Uh, I think that if you look at the last, you know, call it three years of Michigan's quarterback room, you had a a two-year era of Shea Patterson, uh, and then you had a, a quarterback battle between Joe Milton, which was a pretty well-documented dumpster fire, <laughs> and Dylan McCaffrey, who opted out and transferred to Northern Colorado before the season even began. Uh, I think that Cade was, you know, kind of thrust into this starting role, and the the biggest thing that he's brought is leadership and consistency. Uh, I mean, if you look at Shea Patterson, Joe Milton, Dylan McCaffrey, none of them were really vocal leaders. I don't think that any of them really had that trait to rally a locker room I, I think that you know when you're a college football team of 110 18 to 22 year olds that's really important and I, I think that you know last year when Michigan went to Piscataway and it took double overtime to beat Rutgers McNamara gave a, a victory post-game locker room speech that went pretty viral and for good reason because you know among the Michigan fan base it was the, the first time that they'd seen real leadership in quite some time uh, and I, I think that that's something that shouldn't be slept on and I, I think that just generally speaking, it sounds elementary, but the ability to make all the throws, um, I think that Michigan fans and coaches got pretty tired of seeing the Joe Milton air raid and you know overthrow show pretty fast. Um, I mean, he really played his way onto the bench when you know the other guy in the quarterback competition really handed him the reins, and I, I think that McNamara was really you know thrust into that starting role and did a really good job. He was prepared, which was most important. He was only a sophomore last year, and he took over, and since then he's just emerged at this, this stabilizing factor and that's something that I think every college program needs and something Michigan lacked for you know three years two years how are the running backs thriving because it could have been easy for it to go the other way with Zach Charbonnet mm-hmm. just going off and UCLA out of the gate and you're like oh no what, what oh no what, what are we doing here um but instead yeah. you have a two-headed monster yeah I, I think that you, know, you can't really talk about the running backs without talking about the offensive line. Brand new offensive line coach this year, Sharon Moore, uh, previously coached tight ends at Michigan. This past offseason transitioned to becoming the co-offensive coordinator and the offensive line coach. Uh, Sharon Moore knows what he's doing. 
this is a guy who went to Oklahoma and blocked for Adrian Peterson back in the day. So, you know, he's seen great running backs. He knows what it takes to establish a great running game, open holes, pin and pulls. I, I think the, the biggest thing you see with Sharon Moore also is energy on the sideline. And that's not to say Ed Warner wasn't a good offensive line coach, but, you know, Sharon Moore is really, really popular among the players for, as they say, bringing the juice. And I think that's something that really can't be overlooked because, you know, as Harbaugh said multiple times this year, they're making football fun again. And I think that that's something that really lacked last year. I know there was a story that ran in the Michigan Daily uh, last year from Teo Mackey when Michigan lost to Penn State at home. They were down double digits in the second half. Uh, A.J. Henning made a great catch along the sideline, and guys were just sitting on the bench. And Harbaugh had to gesture to the guys sitting on the bench to stand up and cheer. Uh, I think that that was pretty reflective of where things stood at the time. And this year, if you look at the bench, everyone's up, everyone's engaged. And I think the offensive linemen in particular have done a really good job setting that tone. I think that by winning essentially almost every single play in the trenches, uh, they're really, really laying the foundation for success. And, you know, Michigan's leading the nation in rushing for a reason. Defensive changes um, without Don Brown being there for forever and Things are going great in Arizona. I don't know if you've been keeping up, but um, things are really... Um, they were competitive uh, against... Yeah, I mean, they were uh, competitive against Northern Arizona, the the noted Northern Arizona football team uh, over yeah, the weekend. Came up just short. Came up just short, yeah. but, you know, hey, baby steps, baby steps. Um, what is What have you seen that's different defensively, and why do you think there's more reason for optimism with the, the changes there? Everything. Everything is different. Uh, completely brand new scheme. Uh, and I, I think that even deeper than the scheme is the, the new assistant coaching staff. I mean, only one defensive assistant was retained from last year. That's Sean Nua. He's 40 years old. You look at the guys that Harbaugh replaced and the guys Harbaugh brought in, you see a, a pretty obvious youth movement. I mean, I, I think Don Brown was 66. Mike Zordich, the defensive backs coach, was 57. Uh, he replaced them with guys who are below the age of 40. Uh, I think that so much of what has led to this transformation of the defense is just you know players and coaches getting along, players and coaches having conversations. I think it feels more like a, a two-way dialogue than it does a lecture. That's something that Vince Gray was talking about a few weeks ago, I, I think right before the week one game. Um, and you really see the effect of it. And I, I think the 3-4 scheme is uh, a lot better than Don Brown's classic Viper and Blitz first, second, third, and fourth down. Um, you look at uh, a lot of what this Michigan football team is made up of, and I, I think that so much of my concern was rooted in the fact that they have guys on this defense who are recruited for a completely different scheme. And I, I think that first-time coordinator Mike McDonald has done a really good job uh, adapting to that. They have a really, really deep rotation of edge rushers and defensive linemen. I think that that keeps guys fresh. They went out into the transfer portal. They got Jordan Whitley who is six foot two and about 360 pounds. He's taken up space in the middle. Mozzie Smith is having the best season of his career. Aiden Hutchinson looks like a top 10 draft pick coming off the edge. And David Ojabo and Taylor Upshaw are coming along nicely on the other side. So I think that the pieces are there. And while I didn't really see it a couple of months ago, this is a defense that has a chance to sustain success in the Big Ten. Can they beat Ohio State, though? Because I don't know if you, you saw what Thomas Hammock said following the Northern Illinois game, but uh, this is a team he thinks that can beat Ohio State. Do you agree with that sentiment through three weeks? No. He's wrong. <laughs> and I, I know that there are concerns in Columbus over Kerry Coombs, uh, another Big Ten first-time coordinator. 
but I, I think that you know they'll settle down. Uh, this isn't. They'll the settle down. We've grown accustomed to seeing in the first few weeks. Um, you know, I really think that CJ Stroud has looked a lot worse than people think, but he's been playing in pretty weird conditions. I mean, they played through pouring rain week one. Uh, they brought a really good Oregon defense in week two, and then you know, week three, I, I think Tulsa's done a really good job over the last few years of playing Power 5 teams well, but the overreaction coming out of Columbus is just nuts. I mean, that, I think, is the team with the best chance of dethroning Alabama this year. Um, I, I think that if they have to make a quarterback change eventually, they will, and it will be seamless. I know Kyle McCord and Quinn Ewers were both five stars coming out of high school. I, I think that Ryan Day is just too much of a brilliant offensive mind not to figure it out, and defensively things will fall into place. Uh, I think I saw this week that they're making a play caller change, so that should help settle things down. And I, I mean, realistically, by the Saturday after Thanksgiving, they will be the well-oiled machine that everyone has come to love in Ann Arbor. There you go. There you go. Um, when you look at uh, this team on both sides of the ball through three weeks, who would you say has performed the best? You can do even just from Northern Illinois. Who has had the best performance thus far individually and who has had the worst? Who Who's caught your eye on both both ends of the spectrum there? Blake Horn's been a superstar. Um, really no other way to say it. He's a, a sophomore running back from the, the Baltimore area. They didn't play much of a role last year as a true freshman, but I mean, as you alluded to earlier, they had a pretty crowded backfield there. Hassan Haskins, Chris Evans, who's now with the, the Cincinnati Bengals, Zach Charbonnet, who transferred to UCLA, um, and then Blake Gorham, who was, you know, the youngest of all of them. Uh, but he's just come alive this year. Through three weeks, he's pro football focused his highest graded college running back. Um, he leads the nation in all purpose yards. Uh, it is pretty routine to see him take a, an inside zone or a, a handoff, some sort of draw play or run up the middle and take it to the house. Uh, I mean, his quickness and explosiveness is something that I've never seen before. It's something Mike Hart has never seen before, he said last week, uh, which I thought was interesting. He said Corm is not the fastest guy in terms of a 100-yard dash, but in terms of quickness, explosiveness, getting in and out of cut, uh, I think that he's special. And that's what Hart was alluding to. Um, and then Hassan Haskins, too, is, is doing a great job. But if I had to pick a, a stud, it would be Blake Corm. Um I just say the other side of that, the worst performers so far. Uh, you know, I, I really, I don't think anyone on offense has really done that bad of a job. And Michigan's pass defense really settled in nicely after giving up a long touchdown drive in week one. Uh, but in week one, the, the secondary was exposed a little bit in that first half. I, I think Jamon Green got beat pretty bad on a, a couple deep routes and a comeback route. Uh, Vince Gray had a, a couple plays where he was caught napping. I, I think last year's biggest issue was by far the cornerbacks. And this year, when you look at the roster, it's really it's not as much of a red flag, but it's still the same guys. They've gotten a lot better with Steve Klingscale. Uh, Klingscale hired from Kentucky. Um, and, you know, he's obviously got a great pedigree of sending guys to the league from the SEC. But, you know, this the secondary is still not where it needs to be if they're going to go out and beat Ohio State or get a win in Happy Valley or Madison. Uh, I, I think that while they haven't really faced much of a potent passing attack yet, it will be a rude awakening when they do. Um, you, you know, Graham Mertz is probably picking up a lot of their issues on film. I'm sure Sean Clifford and CJ Stroud are doing the same thing. And Graham Mertz uh, needs to focus on getting a getting a handoff off cleanly before fumbling. That's that's, that's where Graham Mertz should focus. They're, yeah, they're, they're, uh, that reminds me of the old Michael Vick story where they would 
have him walk around the facilities with the football, <laughs> practice handing it off to people along the way, uh, mm-hmm. to help with the uh, the exchange. But it is people say that. Do you anyway. do you have fit, like conversations with friends and family about this? Where like I think some people are still not conditioned to quarterbacks being out of the gun at like the two yard line, and them just being like, "Why don't they get under center?" And they they complain about why quarterbacks aren't under center as much, and they're just like, "If you were under center, this would not be a problem. Why would you be four yards back when you only need a yard?" So again, and I'll tell friends, right. I'm like they don't know how to be under center anymore. What are you talking about? Like they yep. grew up in high school. Like they literally don't teach it anymore. They are in the gun from yep. ninth grade on. Like I've talked to so many uh, high school yeah. coaches. They're like, we'd have no, we cannot teach these kids how to be under center anymore. They, no one knows how to do it. That's why they'll fumble. Mm-hmm. And they, they're perplexed oh, by this all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The obsession with the spread offenses and the, the no mm-hmm. undergun has really gone too far. You saw it with Michigan last year too. There was a, a fourth and one, I think it was against Michigan state. Where you know six foot five, two hundred forty pound Joe Milton took a quarterback draw out of the shotgun and got swallowed up for a three yard loss. Whereas at his size and with his physicality, all he would have had to do was you know take an undergun and fall forward for the first down at midfield. And I think Josh Gaddis rightfully took flack for that. Uh, it, it's just something that you know seems so practical yet so foreign for you know so many young gunslingers. So I have a question: Did you know <laughs> Joe Milton is almost identical in size to Cam Newton? Yes. Mm. I uh, think I've read about a hundred stories about the comparison. I think there's still time. There's still time. Uh, he had one Cam Newton-like run, though, last week. When he does, when when Joe Milton flashes, it's a delight. And you're like, this dude could be a superstar. But when he doesn't flash, which mm-hmm. is 75, 80% of the time, you're like, I, oh, I can't do this for a, for a full season. I can't, I can't handle this for 12 games. I, I'm, I just, yeah. I can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Joe Milton ran the ball well at Michigan last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what killed him was throws like the the miss to Ronnie Bell in the Indiana game. Uh, he had Ronnie Bell wide open. Ronnie Bell got between the two safeties about forty yards downfield, and Joe Milton threw it about sixty yards downfield. <laughs> as it turns out, it was Ronnie Bell running the route rather than Usain Bolt. And the, the pass was incomplete by a lot. He just maybe he loves uh, frustrating like the biggest biggest <laughs> fan bases and biggest stadiums yeah. like Neilan and the big house two of the biggest he likes to sabotage games and then search his name on twitter afterwards mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we can't rule it out we mm-hmm. cannot rule it out people are saying not us but people are saying um players to watch going forward going into big 10 play for the wolverines who who should people be aware of that they may not already be aware of uh i mean everyone's aware of kid mcnamara but he's definitely the guy i have my eye on in terms of throwing the ball. I mean, Michigan has run the ball ridiculously well so far. They also haven't played a very physical defense yet. I think that as they play bigger bodies up the middle and teams start to stack the box, it's going to come down to McNamara. Uh, one guy that I think could take a giant step forward on defense is Junior Colson. He's a, a true freshman linebacker, borderline five-star guy. Came out of Tennessee, actually, last year. Uh, I think he's a guy who could end up as a starter by the end of this year. I mean, he's played limited snaps so far. He had an injury in fall camp, but just the natural talent every time he's on the field is undeniable. And for an 18-year-old, he looks like he's you know closer to 20, 21 years old. Uh, he's way ahead of the curve physically. He's a guy that I think really could be running the linebacker room by the end of the year. Uh, he's a guy that could eventually become an all-Big Ten, all-American type of prospect. Uh, and then I, I think I'll throw out another name on offense just because he's you know so explosive. But Donovan Edwards, uh, actually another true freshman. Uh, he is a, a five-star running back out of West Bloomfield in Michigan, won a state championship, and then followed his head coach, Ron Bellamy, to Ann Arbor. Uh, 
you know, there's just there's a lot to like whenever he touches the ball. Uh, he just, I think the the quote Mike Hart had in the, the preseason was he looks like a five star guy. He looks like what a, a five star running back should look like. Uh, really, really hard to bring down. Feels like it takes two or three guys every time. Always makes the first guy miss. And I, I think that despite the fact that he's a true freshman, Michigan's going to go out of their way to get him involved and you know try to bring him up to speed as fast as possible. And uh, I think by the end of the year, you'll be you know at least halfway through Big Ten play, you'll be hearing his name a lot more. There you go. There you go. Daniel, how do we check out your work on the Michigan football team this fall? Sure. You can read my Michigan football stories at michigandaily.com slash sports, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Dash underscore. That is dash spelled out, not a hyphen. I've had people ask me how I got a hyphen in my Twitter handle before. Oh, okay. Yeah, those are uh, that's not, uh, not a thing. Not a thing. Yeah. But after you graduate you have dash radio waiting for you like you're you're just like exactly. i'm part of the brand already you don't have to change much for me they, they named it after me before they even heard about me i mean that's that's a cool thing that's a cool thing like it's cool too because like when you have stuff named after you like for me there was this podcast opening at the chase Thomas podcast network and i was like hey fellas my name is actually Chase Thomas. Like, yeah, I, I, I got you. And then that's one thing led to another, and then the podcast was born. People forget that that's actually how this this all got started. Um, I did not know that. That's a great story. And they opened a bank. And, uh, you know, they did. Do they offer you a, a free line of credit? <laughs> no, but I will tell you, um, that was like one of the, the in my high school, high school days, um, mm-hmm. working retail at a mall back in Atlanta. Um, I remember people would pay with, a chase card or like they would see that my name is chase and they'd be like oh like the bank and i would look over and i'd be like yeah i like the bank and they're like do people do people ask you that a lot do you do you get it like they would ask that same kind of stuff like do you get a discount or do you bank with them and i'm like this bit's gone on too long i don't know what you want me to say to this <laughs> that my name is chase and that there's a bank also called chase bank yeah i got it um but i will say there was a guy i work yeah. with an older dude who would just always yell whenever he would see me like chase bank and keep walking that i appreciate because there's no follow-up he that's just like fun. yelling chase bank and i was like all right uh, yeah. that's whatever but yeah, I like that. I like that. if I you're asking me a follow-up on the podcast mm-hmm. but uh yeah i know you can't hear it in my voice but i'm six foot nine are you uh, the first question i am the first question that i get when i meet a new person is often how's the weather up there <laughs> and that is usually the death of the conversation at that point <laughs> i'm not so gonna I, feel I, any bad are you really six nine I am. Holy shit, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, I grew up on volleyball and basketball. I, I play men's volleyball at Michigan and uh, just trying to put the height to use. Are you a, are you a really tough to play and pick up? Like, you've got to be annoying as, annoying as hell and pick up basketball. Uh, I mean, part of why I didn't end up, at least as a, a high school player, part of why I didn't end up playing college basketball is because I could really only dunk and rebound. Never really had much of a jump shot. Mm. So teams would just kind of pack the paint. That tends to happen and pick up after the first two or three post hooks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Six, nine. How tall are your parents? Not tall. I got a, a five foot four mom, a six foot two dad. And that, that number is plummeting. I think he's shrinking. <laughs> Uh, but I, well, I man, him. shots fired. Your dad might listen to this. I don't know if he's going to want that. Uh, I'm sure this. he will. He knows the truth. It is he a thing. The same height, though. We do shrink. 
We we do shrink. See, I'm at the uh, annoying. Like I'm five eleven, which sucks because I used to always say like I, I was so close because you wanted to say you're six feet. Like you just want to say six right. feet. It's so nice to say six feet, but I'm not six feet. I'm a strong five eleven. Right. And when I slouch and like right. as a writer, you know that takes at least an inch off. When oh you, yeah, uh, the way oh, we're. Yeah. I mean, the sports renaissance woman is constantly like fixing my back because like I am so like as I'm doing this podcast right now, my shoulders fully forward. I'm hunched over. I'm looking at notes and then just I'm going to write after this and then I'm just going to be hunched over even more for for hours on end, do homework. And uh, and just the majority of my life is is hunched over. I'm going to become the hunchback of Notre Dame. But as someone who is already (laughs) aging gracefully into my Larry David ears, um, it, it is what it is. I, I, I welcome this. I welcome this development. That's a good way of looking at it. Cause I, I would say that, you know, close to 99% of people resent it. Yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta accept it. You gotta, you gotta jump forward. Like getting older is great as a young kid. You don't yeah. know this yet, Daniel, but I promise getting older <laughs> is so much, much, it's so much more fun. There is a tipping point. I'm sure I'm going to hit it sooner rather than later, Yeah, but you just gotta take it in stride until then. You gotta take it in stride until then because like the the just the certainty. Like I, I just have no qualms about who I am anymore. Like I, I you just know who you are, you're comfortable with it, you're fit like you figured stuff out. You gotta I, I don't know. I, I just I like what I like, I do what I do, and I uh, I'm good. Now I become someone who I don't know if you're like this, but um you will be. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Where you find something you like, then you're just you stick with it. Like you're loyal to things you have no idea why you're loyal to. Where I'm just like love these cinnamon, uh, these cinnamon bun things that I get at Food City every week. Like they they've got my business for life. And I'm like, oh my god, I've become my father. Like why am I just or, get, like I just don't even look at other stuff. I'm like, no, I had it one time and I'm done. I look at a menu, done. Like it, I know I like that. That's done. We're not trying any more any more things. I'm out. Yeah. Hey, that, I mean, once you find what you love, you just got to lock in on it, no? Absolutely. I've been criticized in the past for tunnel vision at grocery stores and restaurants, but I, I'm a loyal guy. I think that when I, I find something I like, I just I, I put it on the back burner and it becomes the default. That's the other thing of finding someone that you love and you want to spend the rest of your life with is you can you can move on. They understand this. But if you're going on new dates with new people... Um, being someone who is stubborn and knows what they like and are not going to be expansive in what they're looking for uh, food-wise or new experience-wise, oh, it doesn't go well. Let me tell you, Daniel, that's going to be a problem if you're already there. If you already got the tunnel vision and you're just like, Uh-oh. let's meet up for so-and-so, and then she's like, oh, well, let me. you want to split this weird thing that you've never had before that you're not sure you'll like? Guess what? Got to do it. But when you're Uh-oh. you're 30 and you're locked in... Yeah, no, you you can't do it. You gotta. But when you're 30, you can. They're just like, yeah, like Good. it's great. The sports renaissance woman. Bell curve in that sense. There is like the sports renaissance woman will just be like, oh, you she he, like she'll describe it as like you're a trash can. Like you just eat like like what you eat all day long is ridiculous. Like I, <laughs> but guess what? There's no fighting it at that point. It's just like that's that's him. That that's what he's doing. Wow. Yeah. That, that is a an interesting development that <laughs> I think I got to start considering. I'm just trying to give you life lessons uh, as we. No, no, this is good. Mm-hmm. I need my eyes to be pried open. <laughs> I, I promise, it's good. Getting older is good. Getting older in your 20s good. is great. Um, that is something to look forward to. Daniel, thank you so much good. for the time. Again, folks, go follow him on Twitter, course. Daniel Dash underscore. Uh, go read him at the Michigan Daily dot com slash sports. 
keep up the great work, sir. Good luck this season, and uh, we'll check back in again soon. Sounds good. Really appreciate you having me on. Great. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.